Well, hello everyone, and uh, welcome to another episode of the Smack Panda podcast. And today uh, we're blessed uh, with our guest, Dr. Stephen Hill. I was, um, I was, uh, I took some notes, and I was trying to write a nice introduction for Stephen, but I'd need about three or four pages to do it. So. <laughs> Uh, professor at Wollongong Uni, an author, a polymath, worked for the United Nations for many years, set up so many programs. Um, well, this and well, I suppose one of the most interesting things is he's a man that survived death, mm. which is um, official death as well. It was not the pretend death. Can you tell us about that? I was dead last year, between September and November. And it wasn't just my fantasy, it was officially the United Nations decision that I was dead. Okay. Mm. Now, I used to work in the United Nations, as you said, and um, as a result of that, I worked there long enough to get a pension. And I noticed in September that they hadn't paid it for two months. And I thought, now this is not a good thing. So I started chasing this down. And I found a basic rule of the United Nations was they never pay a pension to dead people. Okay. <laughs> and they had declared me dead. Uh, which I found quite disturbing, and I didn't feel dead, and I looked in the mirror and I didn't look dead. I didn't think I was reincarnated or anything. If I was, I was as bad as I was when I started. But anyway, it turned out what had happened was that um, every year uh, for people who are getting the United Nations pension, they send a letter by mail, and you sign it and send it back by mail, and that convinces them that you are alive. alive. I moved from an apartment uh, not long before, And I told them the new address, but they didn't have that down. And so they sent it to my previous address. And the man who took over this apartment after me did die in the apartment. Oh, no. And the people after it got the letter, and of course being very helpful, as they were to the United Nations, they immediately wrote back, oh, he's dead, you know, forget it, he's dead, he's gone. And they believed it. Okay. The next thing I get a letter then from the United Nations, which is not to me, but to the estate of Stephen Hill. So they eventually got your address right, though, somehow. They had the address right, yeah, but yeah. they forgot, didn't quite get it the first time. Yeah. <laughs> and this um, letter uh, from the deputy head of the uh, payroll office in New York of the United Nations, whose name appropriately was Mr Affable, that I thought was entirely <laughs> very. A very, a very friendly sort of guy. Yeah. But it was written to the estate of Stephen Hill, not to me. And it was very consoling to the family and saying, too, so sorry that Mr Hill is now dead. Uh, please send us his death certificate so we can you know, fix this up. Anyway, so I didn't send the death certificate. I didn't yeah, to yeah. do that. I finally persuaded them that I was alive. And they then, after two months, they started paying me my pension back again. But then I got a letter from them which said, and I think this is something a bit in line with... Um, uh, you know, something to put on one's tombstone. Like, yeah. you know, I told them I was sick by... You know, uh, the, yeah, the old Spike Millian. Spike Millian. Yeah, yeah. And what they wrote in this letter was, Dear Mr Hill, we now realise that you are alive. Sorry for the inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> so I, this, this is definitely going on my tombstone. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. But working in the United Nations, I sort of confronted things that were a little bit close to death every so often because it was quite, could be quite exciting in times. Yeah, My for own sure. staff had problems and things too because we're in some interesting places, particularly for me. Um, I was looking after work in, in uh, the Mindanao, which is the southern Philippines uh, okay. province. Yeah. And uh, in, what was it, 1996, the um, 
agreement to stop the conflict was signed. And there after was a that civil war moved. going on? Was it a communist there was, thing there? No, 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 it was Islamic. Islamic, it was, was it? was Islamic war, um, okay. or Islamic conflict and so on. Uh, but Mindanao was way beyond anywhere else in the Philippines in terms of lack of, liter- of literacy and uh, education and, and, and wealth. Okay, yeah. So we moved in on that, and uh, one of the programs, we trained 7,000 village people to be literate. Okay, 7,000. Wow. Yeah. It cost me $100 a person in one year to make them literate. Okay, And one of these women, because the UN asked me about this, well, actually went and talked about it at the United Nations General Assembly uh, yeah. as, a, as a talk. And she said, look, now I, I don't get lost. I can talk to my kids about school. They don't get cheated in, in, the, uh, in my shop you know, yeah. because I can read what's happening. So this is freedom for me, <laughs> what it represented. And the second thing we then started to do was to, we built about nine radio stations, but that required building, bringing together uh, the community across the Christian Islamic lines as well so that yeah. they would support what we're doing. Partly for literacy, but also some pretty young punk kids got in there. And I've got a fabulous recording of um, these kids doing a real sort of fantastic broadcast. Meanwhile, the tanks are rolling past outside. Wow. <laughs> and the, real and the rebels are in the hill. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, the terrorist group Abu Sayyaf took offence at this. And they decided that they would assassinate me. Jeez. And uh, they sent down a squad to take me out. I was living in Jakarta at the time. Oh, you're kidding. And they got through, they came down through Manado and they were in Sulawesi coming across to Java, yeah. where I lived. <laughs> at which stage the security guys in the UN found out about this and alerted me and said, get the hell out of Indonesia, which I did, yep. um, as one does when you're being chased by yes, an assassination squad. You know, it's not something you do easily. Yeah. Um, and that then became another story because I got down to I was going to an island, uh, an office which was one that I looked after as well, in, to some extent in, in Samoa. Yeah. And um, on the way down, we stopped in Auckland, in Pacific Air, and Pacific Air offloaded my entire luggage and replaced it with three hundred Bibles. So <laughs> I arrived in Samoa with, with only a very religious uh, man. Well, a very spiritual presence, yes. but, but only a <laughs> pair of, loved you there. But then. only a pair of shorts for ceremonial occasions. Okay. <laughs> that would have been a heavy bag. Uh, well, it was, but I didn't have to lift it because I got there and I found three hundred Bibles. And, you know, that's strange, right isn't it? So, <clears throat> well, it, 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 it was great for me in terms of the local churches. They thought, yeah, they really kind awesome. of, you know, very helpful. It might have been the Gideons. Those guys get around. They, I don't think they were getting involved. <laughs> I, I, I didn't take a lot of attention, actually. It wasn't really my priority. And, of course, the next weekend I went for, for at least a bit of a leave out to the most remote resort I could find. I got hit by a cyclone, you know, with the trees oh. literally flying past. Wow. The waves going up through the bottom. So at that stage I was almost praying to go back to the bloody terrorists, you know. To, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that was part of life in the, uh, in the UN. And one other story about uh, on a similar vein, you know, given that, I'm now 38, yeah, yeah. so it's close to all this stuff. Uh, it was when I first started, because I first was um, a research chemist before I be- did other things. Okay. Um, I went on and after that, actually, well, come back to that in a minute. The point is that um, I was working in the Unilever laboratories in Balmain, okay? And one day I smelt almonds, okay? Yeah. Now, almonds is not a good smell because that's hydrogen cyanide. Oh, really? Yeah. And you've probably got a minute to live if you smell it. You know, yep. that's possible. Anyway, so I didn't put anybody in, but I did get... What, what had happened was that one very foolish young woman in the laboratory had been using sodium cyanide and threw it down the sink just to get rid of it. Oh, my word. 
Oh, and yeah. then this guy came along a couple of minutes later and tossed away some sulfuric acid. <laughs> <laughs> Off she went. You know, oh. we had the whole laboratory was full of cyanide poisoning. Okay? Yeah. So I told the chief chemist, and he immediately appointed me to develop a system of safety for the laboratory, which they applied, I think, on the other labs of Unilever around the place. Yep. But the only way that you can actually handle cyanide is really fast. And so what I did was to put... Um, uh, everybody had an ampule, ampule attached to the laboratory coat to their collar, okay? Yep. Then they could crush it if they smelt cyanide and breathe it in, Okay. Now, I didn't know they, what, what you used. Was that was, amyl nitrate? Amyl nitrite. Yes. Nitrite, yes. Nitrite, yes, I remember that. It was a bit of a party drug back in the 90s or something. <laughs> well, that was what I found later. I didn't realise yeah. at the time I'd equipped the whole of Unilever Research Laboratory with pill poppers. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, that was, it was and, called poppers, well, wasn't it? it was, all, they, all they had to do was to sort of <laughs> say, ah, almonds crushed, <laughs> hey, and off the pixies they went, you know. I don't actually know whether anyone ever did that. You know, but <laughs> oh, people probably would. <laughs> they probably did. Um, but so the, how did you get? So you're doing chemistry and then switching. I don't know how how you got to the UN from there. Um, so chemistry is a science. How how did you go from a physical science to um, dealing with people? I suppose there's a um, to me a real lesson about having a mentor, somebody who really helps a lot. Okay. Yep. And my supervisor in chemistry was a mentor, seriously a mentor. And he, he, he wanted to find out, this was back in 1964, it's a long, long wow. time back. Yeah. And nobody had ever done anything about finding out what was really going on in science in Australia. They didn't know how much research was being done, who was doing it, what was going on. Yep. Um, we didn't know how many PhD, uh, sorry, what had happened to PhD people, for example, that had come back from overseas or whatever. So he asked me to do this as a side project while I was doing my honours degree. Yep. And which I did, and we travelled around, did all sorts of things. You tracked so, these people down, these. No, no, we, we yeah. surveyed them, but I went around a lot of laboratories to okay. see what was going on. Yeah, and um, the result, uh, but but Ian said, uh, Steve, if you're going to do this, you need to learn economics, okay? Oh, and he yeah, enrolled okay. me in a number of courses in the economics. He gave me uh, Ted Wheelwright, who was the main only left wing economist in the country at that time, as my mentor for the year, and I learned yep. sort of economics. And at the end of that time, I said to him, "Look, what what what's, what what." else is there I could do? He said, well, there's this new degree program called an MBA in Melbourne in the business school. Just yep. started this year, okay? Okay. So I went down and I did the MBA, okay? And I passed, well, I, I was qualified for it, but then I converted it to do a PhD. Masters um, of Business Administration? Master, MBA, Master of Business Administration. Yep. And I went on to do the PhD. In fact, it was the first PhD in business in, in Australia. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> but my supervisor yeah. was um, from what's called the Tapstock Institute in London. Yep. And he was a social anthropologist. So what I did was work with the people in the laboratories, okay? Uh, not study them with questionnaires from outside. Okay, yeah. And that did two things for me. Number one, I started then to, uh, because no one had done it before, and so I sort of first around. And the first science policy conference of the world um, was held by UNESCO in Sydney in 1965, and they brought me in to be the assistant director of this, okay? Ah, okay. So yeah. then I started to get in contact with developing countries as well. Yeah. And that sort of led to many other things as well from there. So in a sense, this mentoring tossed me onto a path. And I then went off and with a Fulbright and a few other bits and pieces to the United States, worked in Chicago and then Sussex University. Yep. And... Uh, Finally got back to Australia and then became a professor of sociology when I was 30 years old. <laughs> so you got your, that's, that's quite young. So you were travelling, when did you get your MBA? You were about uh, 24? 65. So I would have been, uh, what's that, 
why don't you just take a busman's holiday, as it were, you know, take a walk up there. You love walking in the bush and so on. And she just found out she was pregnant as well. So she and her partner had to work out what they're going to do with their relationship. Eight days through the bush, you know. That was sorted out. out. That was sorted out, yeah. (laughs) For sure. So meanwhile, other things were going on behind the scenes. And um, they uh, got to the village of of Mupandua, up in the top of the Highlands. And uh, there was some young kids, basically, from Cambridge University who were there, uh, the leader of whom had a terribly, terribly lovely, you know, posh English accent, you oh, know. Yes. And they flew in two plane loads of, of things to support them when they were there, and they did, broke every rule in the book, even though we told them in advance, and so did WWF. Careful out there, number one, do not take Javanese people with you because, because of the military attacks they associate Javanese with the military murders that were going on. Okay? Yeah, okay. They would be in danger. And secondly, make sure you follow the culture of the people. So, But they'd walk across the land without asking. They would take things, you know, take them back to Cambridge to show them off without asking and so on. So they wow. became a target. And okay. unfortunately, my guys arrived the day before the, the, the OPM decided to attack to these take Cambridge these, kids. these, these Cambridge kids. Yeah. In fact, they even apologised to Marta and said, sorry, whatever, you know, we, but we're going to have to do it. You know, and they were shooting. It was pretty nasty. Um, anyway, so they got captured. And um, there's quite a long story about what happened. We finally got them out. But one, one, actually one important thing, and again, this is about the importance of understanding culture and moving across yeah. cultures. And this is particularly my sociology background helped. Um, it was that when we, fi- uh, we, it was very hard to keep contact with the rebels a lot. We had a program whereby every four o'clock or so every day we had a, a what we called a shed a scheduled broadcast. Okay. <laughs> they had a they had a, a radio which had come from one of the priests who was there, and um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So we would have a we'd have a program of talking to them uh, every day, and so it just suddenly stopped. Is this on a you mean a walkie-talkie or on a radio? Walk, walkie-talkie. Walkie-talkie. Yep. And. Um, it just stopped, and we didn't know why, and we thought, oh, they're playing hardball. That's tough, you know. So that's what we assumed for a month. Yeah. But what actually happened was that the priest had come along and told the radio operator that the military was going to attack, and he pissed off in the jungle with the radio the opposite <laughs> to the rebels. <laughs> they didn't have a radio. Have radio. <laughs> anyway, we finally established contact again. And um, uh, because I was an ambassador, I could, not oper- I could not negotiate at a local level on things uh, because that's an internal political yeah. issue, okay? So we, uh, we, we brought in the International Red Cross and they were marvellous. They, they did a brilliant job. And, and a guy called um, uh, Fermayor um, came in and, and he was the guy on the front end of the, uh, of the, of the negotiation. Okay. And he was taken uh, from his helicopter, you know, 300 metres up, sat on the edge of a cliff, which is about 100 metres high, Surrounded by 200 rebel soldiers uh, in uh, penis sheaths and spears and bows and arrows, and they're pretty fierce, I can assure oh, yeah. you. <laughs> I'm sure. And um, yeah. the leader, number three in the hierarchy, sat opposite him, staring at him for two minutes, and then said, what do you want me to wear, T-shirt or penis sheath? <laughs> <laughs> this is how we start the negotiations, okay? Yeah. And, and um, Ferenc was wise enough to understand what that meant. He said, that's entirely your choice, whether you live in the modern world or the traditional world. Uh, I know it was a deeper question than... Of course it was. It was, yeah, a, yeah. It was about something else. Yeah. Um, uh, but I've got T-shirts if you're cold, which yeah, is the okay. other thing of the gift. Okay, And everything followed from there through, you know, we finally 
after a lot of problems, and, uh, and I won't go into this long story now because I'm talking about the gifts, okay? Yeah. <coughs> Point is, we got out two of the Javanese were actually murdered um, at the very end game. And How long was this? So these five months. Five months. Yeah. So and meanwhile, Marta's pregnant. She was brand new pregnant. You yes. sent her on holiday. Yeah. Nice walk, and she she comes back five months later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, but meanwhile, they had a plan for the baby. The baby was going to be born in the jungle. Okay. And the baby was going to call Papuani after the after the province. Yeah, and would be carried into battle in front of the soul, uh, front of the the uh, the the, um, uh, the the traditional men uh, to protect them from bullets. Okay, we didn't think that was a good idea oh. at all. <laughs> was that for it was a god baby, like it was a, a spiritual thing, or or a, or a human shield? Uh, no, no, it was a god baby. It was a god sense. baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the way they saw it. Okay. Wow. We, we didn't think that was a good idea. Anyway, we got Marta out. It was pretty tough. We finally got her out and so on. That all, all happened. The yeah. point is that um, then uh, uh, General Pabova, who's been trying for years and years to try and be president of, you know, of uh, Indonesia and never quite got there, thank God. Yeah. Uh, when he worked with us, he was actually good. I mean, he was Western trained and he understood we had to negotiate, not just attack. Okay, yeah. But afterwards, he was free, and he just set up this pogrom. He, up he was the a general there, wasn't he? Was, oh, he wasn't a general at that time. He became one. Okay. Uh, I think he was, a, yeah, he was, a, anyway, he was, he was more junior. But the thing is that he then attacked uh, the village up in the Highlands, and, and quite a number of people were killed. We never could find oh. out exactly what happened. Yeah. But then settled down a bit. But what had really happened in the meantime was that all the pigs of the people in the Highlands had been killed. Uh, either by people wanting to eat, including the military, who just ate whatever the hell they liked, yep. or the people trying to escape into the jungle who'd kill the pigs and take the meat with them so they'd have something to survive yeah. with. And the pigs in that society are really important socially because, for example, um, uh, a man, and it's a man, uh, gets status because of the number of pigs that he has, not because he has them, but because he gives them. At ceremonies, oh, is that right? Okay. okay. So the 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 big man gives a lot of pigs at ceremonies, and everyone values him enormously for all of this. Okay, they yep. then eat them and whatever. And um, so all the pigs have been killed. So I said, I'll replace the pigs of Mopanduma, uh, and I flew 108 pigs by helicopter up into the highlands. Okay, this is this is not easy. <laughs> no. What size are these pigs? Uh, about this size. Quite okay. Small. Yeah. Uh, small, but. But they got a bit of packaging to... pigs is not easy no, for an aircraft. Not... Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Anyway, we got them in. We had to fly in. Very, they had to fly. I didn't actually take the flight, but we had to get them in uh, very early before the mist came down. Okay. Yep. Uh, I mean, when I did go up there in the plane, for example, uh, the airstrip was uh, like a slope about this size. And so the plane would land uphill and just stop at the end and put the brake on. But wow. to take off, it just went like... Like bat out of hell down the mountain, then just dropped until it yeah. picked up an air current. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! It wasn't a secure way to get around. <laughs> but anyway, so I gave the pigs to the people. Okay, and they yeah. got very pleased about that. And but they said uh, the elders talked to me, and they said, "Look, um, we don't know what the world's like outside this jungle. We've never been outside ever before." Okay. Yeah. And um, so they, um, I said, "Okay, I'll, I'll bring you to." up to Jakarta, and you can see the world, okay? And in two lots, I brought tribal chiefs for the very first time out of the jungle yep. into the modern world, okay? Wow. <laughs> but, and, and port by port as they came up, because I sent my culture guy down there to, to look after them. <clears throat> it became a big media role internationally, okay? Yep. And by the time they got to the Jakarta, it was a, a big deal, you know? Uh, tribal chiefs come to the modern world for the first time. Story. Yeah, yeah. 
President Suharto contacted me and said he wanted to meet them all, so I had to introduce them to the president as well. Yeah. And um, that became interesting as well because um, they had never been out of the jungle before and came. And, for example, one of the ministers of the president said, I would like to take these people to lunch at one of the restaurants I own. Okay? Now, yep. These guys had never been to a city before. They had never been to a restaurant before. They had never been to a Japanese restaurant before. Oh, and in yeah. particular, they had never been to a teppanyaki Japanese restaurant where they throw <laughs> things right, at each other. Yeah. <laughs> and I have this terrible image that I created this new system in, in uh, West Papua where people take the stone axes and they throw at each other and catch them <laughs> to make their meals. <laughs> I'm not sure that happened. Anyway, the other thing which happened was that I yeah. said to these guys, I mean, through a translator, I couldn't speak their la dialect, of course. Um, I said, look, this has become such a really interesting thing. I'd like to put on an international press conference. Okay? And they said, fine. We are used to speaking. We do oration at part of our ceremonies and yep. whatever. You know? um, not a problem, but we want to dress formally. I have, no pro- I have my suit and tie on. No problem. Yep. Yep. And then I put on this uh, international press conference uh, with CNN and all the big TV crews coming in and the lot in the UN building. And these guys arrived and they're totally naked except for penis sheets. <laughs> this was formal. That's formal. <laughs> for, for, and I don't see only, it's the only international press conference I ever ran with a bunch of naked men. You know, I could actually literally see through the nose of the guy next to me yeah. because he'd forgotten his bone <laughs> goes in there. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> anyway, this is all fine. And the next time I went down to West Papua, okay, they yeah. said, we're going to put on a ceremony for you. This is, I'll get back to the gift. This is my yeah, point. yeah. Okay. And so up in the Highlands, they put on this tribute ceremony for me, okay, especially. And, of course, the plane being in Indonesia was five hours late. And what the, by the time I got up into the Highlands, what that meant was that the pigs, they had to disinter the pigs to get them out of the ground. Oh, okay, yeah. Which meant they were fly-blown and rancid by the time oh. I got them. But being the honoured guest, no one would eat till me, okay? Yeah. And, I, and they gave me the best parts. The best part were the jaw and the heart, Okay. Yep. rancid flesh of a inside of a pig. Oh, 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 uh, and this oh, is where you learn one key thing about working in a diplomatic world in such situations. Always carry a Swiss penknife. Okay? Ah, okay. Because I can slice off the sl- tiniest slivers. That's so beautiful. I must pass it to you. I cannot keep this anymore. <laughs> and pass it on. Okay. Anyway, so then they produce the, the gift, which is the whole point of this, giving about this story. Yeah. Um, and the gift... Uh, consisted of um, uh, a complete armload of spears, bows and arrows and about eight penis sheets for different occasions, okay? Um, <laughs> <laughs> is that one yes, that's one of them right oh, there. Fantastic. Exactly. That's exactly it. I was going to bring one on today, but it was too long to fit in the bag. <laughs> what are they made <laughs> of? Does, hey? What are they made no, of? It's a, it's a yam or some kind oh, of... Oh, uh, so it's a uh, vegetable. It's a vegetable, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I could say that it was too big to fit in the bag, but it's not related to me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point is that so I, the, all this thing, and, I, and, and then and, and a statue because I'd also created two um, uh, art or culture centres there because they, a lot of the traditional um, arts were disappearing, even making stone axes the way they used to, and so on and so forth. Yeah. I brought in, we brought in the best guys we could find. And what they produced, uh, we badged them with a United Nations logo to say it's authentic and then got them sold so they got money back as oh, well. Oh, excellent. Got yeah. stuff, okay. Anyway, the guy who was the main sculptor also gave me, a, gave me this beautiful statue about this size. You know, I've got it at home now. Yeah. And, and it's, it's literally a log carved entirely internally so that without... 
anything being connected. There's a group of men climbing up a, up a you know, a tree. Wow, fantastic. Uh, and one of them actually has a, a penis sheath on, which you can take off and put back. <laughs> wow. That's so they a lot gave, of work. They gave me these. It's amazing. But he did yeah. this in days, literally. It's just extraordinary what they could do. But the point is, I, had, I, was, I got, fortunately, someone to take the statue, but I couldn't. But I had to carry all the spears, okay? Yeah. And I got down to Jaipura, the capital, then I get on a commercial flight back to Jakarta, okay? With an armload of spears this big and bows and arrows and and and, and, and I got and I got finally got through to airport security on the way out way in to get the plane. Yep. And the guy looked at me and said, "Oh, that's too high. Just take it on board." <laughs> <laughs> so I, I took on enough armors to take over the airport, you know, yeah. <laughs> and got them back. So that was the other gift I was going to say, apart yeah, from my yeah. my shirt, okay, from from BHP uh, from uh, Unilever. Um. Lots else too. Um, I was just wondering, I'm just jumping back in there. When they went to Jakarta, these tribesmen, how were they, what was the mood in Jakarta? Like, what, what, what do Indonesian people think of the West Papuans? Do they consider them Indonesians or is it separate? Uh, it's changed since then, but um, they're pretty remote from anything which is really seriously Indonesian. And this was just like something which is really an interesting story type yeah, okay. thing. Yep rather than accepting people back into the mainstream of Indonesia. Okay, uh, and I think yeah. it's probably still, still pretty still much the same. Still a bit like that. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, the dominant culture in Indonesia is the Javanese, uh, and the, the dominant you know, numbers of people as well. Yeah. Uh, but the language, uh, Bahasa Indonesia, actually is there because it was the, the language of the traders. And so oh, it's the okay. most widely spread language, not the most uh, concentrated one. But so they chose, which is very sensible. They yeah. chose that rather than Javanese. It's a very simple language, so it's um, okay. It's that's what the Papuans use, is it? Um, uh, did I speak that at all? They they speak it. Yes, they speak that too, but but not if they're in the jungle. They yeah, yeah, teach yeah, their own. I mean, I, I don't know the exact number in West Papua, but I know that Papua New Guinea has nine hundred languages. Okay, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, yeah, I was, I was um, talking to a friend. Of, is is that because they have so many valleys, and so you know to go. Uh, talk to your neighbours. You've got to climb over a mountain and that. So yeah, tend not and to it's do been, it. And it's probably been there for a hundred years, like that too. Yeah, so, yeah, so they, of course the language has developed over that time. That's incredible. Yeah, but um, so I don't know the exact number in West Papua, but it's very similar. So it's I think maybe three hundred languages or something like that in West Papua. Yeah, uh, but the, so the only common language is actually Indonesian, and yeah. uh, you know which they, which they speak. Um, just finally, just to say one more thing about rewards, uh, awards. Um, yep. Uh, one of the programs I was running in in uh, Mindanao in the in the Philippines uh, was on. It's sort of an island, but not quite. Called Palawan. Okay, on the west coast of of Mindanao. And um, what it was an area that was. Uh, close to a World Heritage site, a cave site, which we, I was responsible for World Heritage on the region too, and which we were looking after. And um, But we'd help the village people to develop small industries around it to attract tourists, okay? For okay. example, yep. they all learned to scuba dive and they train, they show people how... Not scuba dive, to um, just... Swim and... Snorkel. And snorkel, and yeah, snorkel, yeah. 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 Uh, we built a sort of a... a uh, ecology path for them. We did fish farming and a variety of other things, which got the people started to get the people some money. And the key thing was to uh, the tourists started to come. 
but were able to convince the government that the tourists did not go further than the outskirts of this village. Yeah, yeah. Until uh, it was at that point that the village people took over, and so they got all the income, not these tourist companies. Ah, oh, great. From yeah. Okay. But why I mentioned this, um, the, the the prize or the present, <laughs> is that um, uh, I um, recognised the power of a rock. Okay. Yeah. Because one of the villagers had this very large rock just on the edge of the village. Now, why it was important was that the whole of the cask landscape had uh, eroded over a thousand years or whatever, except for this rock. Okay. Okay. And inside the rock, there were caves. Uh, there were caves and passages and stalagmites and stalactites. It's a big rock. Oh, it was a big yeah, rock. Yeah. yeah. And on top of it was a completely unique uh, flora because it had been isolated for a thousand wow, years. Okay? okay, yeah. And so what, what I did, or what we did, was to um, uh, train them in, uh, in how to handle people who were spelunking. Uh, we gave them the equipment to do this, trained them in geology so they could talk about it. Yep. And this rock became the source of income wow, for the whole village. That fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Just, I mean, it's a sort of seeing through just a slightly different eye because they've had this rock for the you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, you know, get the bloody rock out the back, it's a nuisance. Yeah, know. yeah. But to see it a little differently, you know, and, and suddenly it's, it's a... It's, it's a treasure. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, one consequence of that is that uh, Mayor Hagedorn, the mayor of the whole area, gave me the uh, annual Mayor's Award as a result of this. So that was my third <laughs> gift. <laughs> Did it come with a prize? Uh, a prize? Yes. The Mayor's Award. Uh, Did well, you get a piece of the rock? Oh, no, no, the prize. Oh, no, no, it came with the prize, a big plaque and all sorts <laughs> oh, of things. Oh, fantastic. no, no, this is an official prize. It's, yep. I've actually got it at home and one my, somewhere. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so with, I was just thinking about Java. Have you um, had anything to do working at Wollongong Uni uh, with Java Man? Was that a... Not the, personally, or, it was or, way back. Was it? Or, or was there's the Hobbit, the, the guy from Wollongong? Oh, yes, 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 that's right. No, it didn't have anything to do with oh, that. Oh, okay, yeah. No, that was fascinating stuff. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. I think there's a lot of um, megalithic structures in Indonesia, um, pyramids and things like this that haven't been um, fully uh, uncovered yet as well. There seems to be a, a lot of stuff going uh, on. Let there. me tell you one story, if I may. It's about the yeah, island absolutely. of Sibirut, okay? Now, if you look at the map of Indonesia... Uh, above Java, you will find the island of um, uh, Sumatra. Okay. Yeah. Uh, west of Sumatra, there's a, 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 a channel, the Su- uh, Sunda Trench, I think it's called. And the other side of that, there's a chain of islands, the Medawai chain of islands. Okay. Okay. Now they are remote. Okay. To get there, you've got to somehow fly into Padang, you know, which is Indonesian airline, which is always interesting. Catch a ferry, <laughs> which is a very, very, you know, uh, challenging ferry across the across the Sunda Trench, which is you know waving like this all the time. Yep. And then I had my official dugout canoe, the other end of this. Okay, uh, wow. this is I felt my most appropriate official United Nations vehicle was a dugout canoe. Okay. Yeah. And I seriously thought of putting a you know, Argentine flag on the front of it so we could fly it and we rode up and down the, the rivers and so I didn't do that, but still. <laughs> and, but still had to travel for it. And, and this was with an engine on the back, you know, still had to travel another few hours, a couple of hours to get up the river, then, then you had to walk in to get to this village, okay? Wow. Very remote. Okay, yeah. But it was the last island that had yet not been exploited by illegal traders and... Um, uh, and, and people coming in to destroy the forests, okay? Yep. And it had, prob- it, had, it had the largest number of primate species in the world in their forests. Wow. It was a very important forest, okay? Yep. So we basically put up a... Uh, a we set up a program there to stop 
this uh, infiltration coming up the, the trenches, okay? How would you, how, how'd you do that? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, uh-huh. I was going to say, because that would be... Um... No, no, we had, I got a, there's a, guy, a German guy is called Kuhn who's just absolutely brilliant. He finally learned all the dialects and he looked after the people. He was accepted as an elder eventually as well. Yep. Um, but the first thing I did, there were several things. The illegal traders would come in thinking, oh, oh, oh you know, we're, oh, you know, no one's going to watch us here, so we yeah. changed that. And I sent up, because I used to get quite a number of uh, young interns from Europe, for example, who wanted to go and have a, explore this Ada cultural places. So I'd send a couple of them up to uh, to Silver uh, Island. And, um, but dressed in United Nations things with UN on the back. So as soon as these guys walked out of the jungle, these United Nations people would say, what are you here for? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then the next thing I did, was, or we did, was to... Um, to say, well, look, it would be really good if you could um, uh, maybe all get together rather than be taken separately while you do these negotiations. So we'll, why don't we build a hut together, a big hut, okay, which we yep. did. And they, that's where the negotiations, that was my school, okay. Oh, beautiful, yeah. But the, then there was a problem because girls were not supposed to be educated beyond the age of eight, okay. So I sent in female interns to work in the kitchens, here was a pot, P-O-T, pot. So they yeah. used the kitchen as a way of yeah, training, yeah. okay? But the key thing, which I was going to say, is this. Um, we thought the people, uh, they'd been there for 1,500 years or something. I mean, it's very, very long yeah. time that they'd been there. And their views about their forest were absolutely like somebody who was really green, you know, somebody who was really conscious of the forest and knew yeah. what they were doing. So that they would never take more of a particular plant than was, could be used and... And so on. So we assumed, oh, they've got a really great green consciousness, okay? And had we assumed that and continued with that assumption, we would have destroyed their whole culture because the reason that they thought it was, that we thought they were green is that they knew if they took too much of that particular plant, their grandmother's father's cousin's dog would die. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's entirely ritual-based, yeah. entirely, Okay. So had we come in sort of assuming, you know, great green consciousness and all that, we would have immediately attacked their, their ritual basis of doing this, yeah. which would have started well, to unpeel the basis of their culture, okay? Yeah, yeah. So we never sense. did that. You know, we did quite a few other things as well that finally became uh, important in terms of their development, but mainly it allowed this to stop this encroachment coming up the, yeah. the Medawai chain. Oh, that's fantastic. And it, and it worked. Oh, it yeah, worked a long worked. time. Uh, but it, look, oh, it took time. Uh, yeah. I mean, we finally had a team of locals, of about a dozen of them, who basically took all this over. Uh, yeah. And uh, even, in fact, one of his supporters, interesting enough, was an Australian-based surfing group um, that, oh, that, that surfed the Menowai chain. Yeah. Um, and uh, surf, surf Aid, I think they were called. Okay. Um, but they wanted to help the local people, okay? So we actually became, uh, we became involved with them to set up a Surf Aid program. Yep. Um, then I got the Australian government interested <coughs> in what we might be doing up there. Um, but because Surf Aid was the only Australian group that was on the Medawai chain. Yeah, around at the time. Uh, foreign Affairs said, ah, we need an, there must be an Australian counterpart here. They wanted to make this surfing group um, my boss. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> For the United Nations. And I said, well, no, it's, no it doesn't work quite like that. You yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> we finally worked out a deal. But, but that was sort of one of the side chains as well. But my, the, what all I'm saying about this is that, uh, and there were lots of other t- times when we needed to do this. Yes. Yeah. For example, in Papua, 
uh, as in the case of the Sibirut Island, um, it meant working within the culture. Yeah, I was going to say that. Is not, it, not against it. Is not something ignorant. that can be exported? Because oh, we all hear the horror stories about what's happening with the orangutans in Indonesia. Um, that system you set up there, you know, working within the culture, do you think there's still hope to use that on a larger scale over there? Uh, we did a pro- – that was in Kalimantan okay. where that's yeah. happening. Um, and I said we set up a program there. Um, I mean, I don't – it's – a while since I've retired, so I don't exactly know what's happening now. But yep. um, what we were able to do was to set up a consortium of all of the industries around the main national park, Kutai National Park, yep. where, where the, uh, the apes and things are. Um, and they actually agreed to form a kind of a barrier of protection and support. Yeah. And they actually did this. And they, were, they were great. Uh, so we actually were able to get some support Excellent. from that. And yeah. we also had people going in, of course, to work with the people, uh, again, on yeah. something about the animals or whatever. Um, I, I don't know what's happened recently. Okay. Uh, but it was at least somewhere starting to get something moving on that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, wow. I was just thinking maybe um, maybe you'd just briefly sketch a couple of things out of my past that sort of make the connections, which I was saying, talking about before. For sure. Um, let me think. Yeah, just just one of the things. Um, uh, as I told you before, you know, I came through a strange background and starting with a scientist, sort of moved into business yeah. and out of it quickly and became a sociologist. <laughs> we haven't even done the sociology th- thing yet with Wollongong University. So you're only 30 years old. Yep. And you set up the first sociology course in Australia, is it? Not in Australia. No, no there was the one in... Uh, in Melbourne at, uh, which one? One of the Melbourne universities that had been set up for a couple of years before, okay. New South Wales University, because I'd actually worked in New South Wales Union Sociology for three years before I took the one here yep. uh, in, in Wollongong as well. Um, but being only 30 years old, a little bit adventurous, Yeah, I didn't do quite what the university normally would expect, so they thought I was a bit weird because, for example, I, ha- I had no tables and chairs in my seminar rooms at all, only cushions. Oh. <laughs> so we can sit around and be cool. We, we're a hippie at all. A hippie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I like the hippies. <laughs> <laughs> I became a hippie in Chicago, actually, when things were happening there, because I was involved. I mean, I happened to be in Chicago in, 60, in 68, okay, when the yeah. revolution, when the democracy revolution came up. Is uh, that uh, the uh, convention, the yes, Democratic the, Convention? The, riots, the Democratic the Convention and the riots. convention. Oh, yeah, wow, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. so many people there. That was a big... One of those knots in time, I think, you know, where a lot of things sprung from that. Uh, true. And one of the really interesting things, I mean, it, it was the police were brutal, weren't they? Brutal. Yeah. Uh, crowd clearance was driving a Jeep as fast as they could down the street with barbed wire in the front. They wow. were slashing the tyres on cars or anywhere near the demonstration. Uh, but then, um, who was it? Uh, Paul Newman and, um, oh, who's the woman at the time? They were delegates to the to the conference, okay? Okay. Now, there had already been riots. Was it Jane Fonda, was it? No. Yes. Oh, was it? Ah, I thought so. She's always good. No, 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 it's not yeah. Jane Fonda. Well, maybe it was. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just that's right. We'll moment. figure it out. Yeah. But yeah. the point was that um, uh, they um, uh, there had already been riots and things in the, along the strip of... of uh, Suburbs that the people that the people coming to the conference went to, yeah. Um, but Mayor Daly had already put big advertising signs all the way along, so they couldn't see it. Okay, ah, is that right? And when yeah. they were in the demo, in the uh, convention, uh, they could not see anything about what was happening outside. They were totally enclosed. 
They had no okay. knowledge of what was going on outside. But we outside had television to watch them inside. Yep. Okay. Now, what happened was that Paul Newman actually came in with the television because he heard something was going on outside and he put it in the middle and we could watch this happening. Okay. Yeah. And here wasn't Jane Fonda. What's her name? Anyway, it doesn't the point. The point is, it was, it was famous actress. They looked at this and they then led a demonstration group out to uh, to go to the students to support oh, them. Oh, excellent! Yeah, it was just fantastic, you know. And it, so they they really became involved. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I was in a university called Northwestern University on the north side of Chicago. It's where I was working. Yep. And um, we, these were the days. It was at the same time. Uh, these were the days when. Um, um, they had uh, fraternities, okay, where men, men, yeah, all, uh, would have places where they could develop right-wing attitudes and look at the world outside with disdain, okay. And the black students decided, they said, look, we, we, they won't let us join. We can't get into a fraternity. We would like to set up our own fraternity. Now, the university by this time had decided, no, we will not have fraternities anymore. We, they think it's a very bad idea. So they refused the black students. So the black students decided they would take over an administration building in protest, okay? Yep. And they went to this... I was there. Uh, well, they went to this building and uh, they're standing out the front of it, you know, sort of protesting and so on, and all the security guys are there, and several of the students started to walk around the back. All of the security guys, being very intelligent gentlemen, went around the back, so they just walked in the front door and took it over, okay? <laughs> And then the white left-wing students said, ah, we want to support our black brothers, okay? Yeah. Um, and the black brothers said, piss off, honky, this is ours. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what they did was take over another admin building. So we had a black admin building and a white admin building <laughs> separate from each other in protest. And at this stage, the fraternity men decided they would do something about this, okay? And yep. they started to march down the main street through the middle of the university called Sheridan Road. And they were going to get rid of these black kids out of this place, you know, that they had no right to be in. But the dean of students was a man who understood the world well. Yep. And he came out, stopped the students, the fraternity men in the middle of Sheridan Road, and he said... You men take one more step forward, I will suspend you from the university. And they all went home thinking, oh, God, we're going to that down this too yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it stopped it. <laughs> so a lot was happening in Chicago in those oh, days yeah. where I started to become a hippie dub. Yeah. Uh, image. Oh, it went away. Sorry. No, well, that is an image there. <clears throat> oh, oh right. One there. Oh, good one. Good work. Ah, oh. oh, you got to pay for it. <laughs> oh, there we go. Is that the building? Uh, it must be. Must yeah. Be. Yeah, Black What an interesting time, wasn't it? Oh, know? it was an extraordinary time in America. It really was. Um, the pendulum was swinging, but then it did swing back the other way quite far, didn't yes. it? You know, so these things tend to happen that way. No, so. it did indeed. Mm. Can you see it happening at Wollongong Uni <laughs> anytime soon? There's a major change with the new Vice-Chancellor. Oh, a major okay. change. Yep. Uh, she was previously Dean of uh, Nursing at uh, Johns Hopkins University in the States, which is the oh, main the, medical yeah. university. Yeah, for sure. Um, she has a background. In, she did two years of sociology with me at Wollongong. Did she? And she still remembers. Is that is she, is she, <laughs> yeah, Patricia. You got it. Patricia Davidson. Is, is Patricia Davidson an Australian that went over to She's the Australian. States? Oh, okay, yeah. She's Australian. And, but she, her attitude is very open and, and oh, prepared good. to sort of develop a whole... 
a people and care centered institution, including the focus of what Wollongong becomes famous for. Okay. Yeah. So she is, I think, a major breath of fresh air to the place. Oh, that's fantastic. It really is, and and that will develop. You know. Yeah, because I remember when my wife went there. Um, she was there just when they got rid of the compulsory student unionism. And it seemed to me, as I used to go pick Haley up and everything, and the culture just kind of died a bit, you know? It, um, the spark <coughs> went out of it a little bit. It became you know? administratively controlled yeah. and self-driven with the vice-chancellor who was more interested in himself than most other things. Well, yes, he was... Not, well, I don't want to say anything, but he was he was on a lot of money. <laughs> as well, it was, it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, the salary started a million dollars plus. A million, plus three plus. times more than the Prime Minister. Mm. And the thing that frustrates me, as someone that has kids that want to go to uni, that my, my son was looking at doing an arts degree, I went down to this nice uni in Melbourne, it was $80,000 mm. for two years. And in Australia, I didn't realise, I looked into the fine details. In New Zealand, you can go bankrupt on a student loan. In Australia, you can't. That hex debt... Really? N- no, it's just like the Americans. So, we researched it a couple yeah, we, weeks ago. And, um, and they say it's interest-free. It's not. It's actually linked to inflation. And if you're looking at inflation, we could be looking at 10% this year. You know, wow. So if my son had taken this arts degree... And he's an artist and he wants to be around artistic people. And we were happy to even, like, we thought it was 30 grand or something like that. And we thought, well, that's too much anyway, but we'll, we'll go halves and he can put some yeah. money and, you know, we can do something with it. But $80,000 for a young person uh, with that amount, of, he's never going to own a house. Like, this is life-changing money. Wow. And, um, and the thing, I, like, when I hear that um, the million dollars was the starting salary, I'm like, well, that million dollars is paid for by the future of these kids. And the arts degree has been doubled in price. Been doubled in price. And what does that say about our political system? They don't understand the arts. No. Like, a little rant. The future is the arts. Of course it is. You know, like, computers are going to come along. The factories aren't coming back. Nothing. The only thing that's going to survive and is, is the creativity of the human mind. That's one thing the, the computers aren't going to be able to beat us at. I don't think, anyway. No, I totally agree. So the arts are where it's at. And, um, and we're just hobbling ourselves. It's... It's a, a and all but two prime ministers had arts degrees. Yep. And one was Howard and the other is Morrison. Classic. There you go. <laughs> well, it's so, a quite a good example uh, already. I also, also think um, if you look at, uh, was it a trillion dollar industry, what came out of England in the 1960s, looking at the Beatles, the Rolling, all those bands, all that whole music industry, which um, was not only a massive money maker, but it's one of the... When you look back at human history, you know, we've done a lot of bad things, but, you know, the Beatles and things like that were some of the best things we've ever done. And they all went to art college, you know, and they, they were, you know, uh, sons of wharfies and things like that because they didn't have to pay for it. You know, mm. like human endeavour could get you somewhere um, and a human interest in something other than just money. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a poorer country for it. I think. And the other thing is, and a lot of people don't seem to realise this, the, the, what, the source of value in the economy has changed. Mm. Uh, it used to be particularly about big business and controlling stuff and so on. It's now very much to do with um, uh, community creativity-based uh, act- activity and, and enterprise. If you look in particular to the Australia Institute, which is in Canberra, yep. and very actively involved in the media and so on, um, uh, Dennis, uh, the chief economist there, has a view which is absolutely similar, at least what I would believe as well. And yeah. that's the three L's. 
where you invest is local labor and long term. Okay, absolutely. And yep. um, I may have told you this, but I've just I'm publishing literally right now a book on economics. It's coming out in the next couple of weeks. Oh, fantastic! Uh, I mean, one does. What's, these what's the name of that book? <laughs> it's it's the second in. I'm, I'm working. I'm still. A, I am now. I should say a. Um, uh, ongoing visiting professor in Kyoto in Japan, in the Japan oh, Centre nice. for the Creative Economy. Okay, yeah, Kyoto is my favourite city. Look, if you need uh, someone to help, help you with the bags, the bags or something yeah. like that, I will be your man. <laughs> Kyoto is just amazing. In fact, just so, I mean, to digress on Kyoto for a second, it it is so old. Okay, so yep. for example, there's a restaurant that I've been to. In fact, we did a film at the restaurant when talking about this a little while. But we were working with a French filmmaker whose name's not on my brain at the moment, yep. but he's quite famous. And he filmed what we were doing and so on. But we filmed the section with myself talking to this guy, um, um, Stormo Yamashita. Um, oh, yes. We were so, you have to tell us more about Stormo. Oh, Stormo's great. Yes. Fabulous guy. But anyway, we, we, the, he filmed them in, in this restaurant. Now, the restaurant uh, is 1,200 years old, continuously <laughs> oh, working God. for that time. They, and all they sell is uh, mung beans and rice, barbecue stick and tea. Now that beats the shit out of McDonald's. You know? oh, that's it <laughs> for one thousand two hundred years. Look, that is how you, as a as a, a chef, that's my. Um, oh, of course, it is my that's trade. I, when I go to a restaurant and I see a large menu, I just want to walk out. Mm. You know, no, give me one or like three or four things on the menu. Do them exceptionally well and do them for twelve hundred years. You and, know, and that's that's most of the small Japanese restaurants. You probably saw that's what they do. That's what you're doing. If they, you feel like something they else, they don't give you a menu. They just simply this is what we're doing today. This is what today. we've got. There's a there's a um, Japanese show, one of my favourite TV shows. It's on Netflix, Midnight Diner. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a it's an actual diner opens in Tokyo at midnight till seven in the morning. Oh, really? And he doesn't have a menu. Well, yeah, no. oh, he's got one thing on the menu, but if he will cook you whatever. If you come in and if he can make it for you, hot dogs or what, you know, he'll just make you. And those wonderful, he's in the middle and there's that bar around and it's, um, so. Oh, yes, yes. It's yes. a great, um, I want to go. Actually. There we go. That's it, Midnight Diner. Uh, Stormo and I, we're in a restaurant. He's a very close friend of mine now. And I'll come back to Stormo in a minute because he's a very interesting man. Mm. Um, but the thing was, we were sitting in a, in a Japan, in one of the Japanese restaurants with the, uh, the what, what's the thing that goes around? in the, um, Like sushi, sushi train. Sushi something. train. Yeah, yeah. Going past. And we thought, no, we're going to change this concept. What we'll do is have the chairs going around, not the sushi That's train. That's great. And they can go through a back door into a, into a place they can stay the night, you know, while they're there, while the bed is sort of moving forward. Yeah. And, so on. and then the next day they can come back for breakfast around the other way. Yeah. Know? We couldn't convince the guy to change his system, though. It was a bit It's clever, though. I like it. <laughs> well, it had a different concept, you know. Focus yeah. on the people. But um, seeing as we're in a storm, let's keep with storm for a moment because it does connect back to what I did in the UN. Interesting enough. Okay, yeah. And if you look, again, another side story to a side story. There's so much. We, 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 I was thinking how we're going to run this interview. We just can't do it as a linear thing, I don't think. There's just too much. We've just got to branch off and, <laughs> and see where we go. Well, um, let me tell the Stormare story because it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an important story. Um, as, as I've told you, we haven't talked about this in the interview, but uh, I work with um, using music um, and performance to heal children caught in conflict or trauma, okay? Yeah. And uh, I set up this, uh, co-set up a, um, an NGO, which we eventually call Sacred Bridge, uh, pretty much soon, as soon as I got to Indonesia with a guy who became a very close friend but unfortunately died two, three years back, Rano. 
And um, in fact, I'm actually still the patron. And we had a, a month long concert last year, as a matter oh, of fact, in January, the whole of January. Anyway, that's another story. Yeah. The thing is that um, uh, th- this worked remarkably well. I mean, the impact it had on kids was extraordinary. And I'll take you through that story before I come back to Stormont. Okay? Yeah, okay. And the reason, and the thing was this. Um, we first worked with the children mainly across in Sumatra who were involved in conflict in situations of conflict between Christians and Muslims, okay? Okay. About 400 of them, okay? There's a lot. Yeah. My next program was with the street gangs of Jakarta, okay? And um, by this time, for whatever reason, I'd got total support from the government and so they were prepared to allow me to, to run this thing in the National Museum, Okay. Okay. And I had the, while I was doing this, I had a visit from, at that time, the uh, Director General of um, UNESCO, who's called uh, Federico Mayor, a Spaniard who loved uh, the world of women. Oh, who doesn't? And every time he'd come <laughs> to my, my, uh, my uh, countries, he would bring his latest woman with him was from the Secretariat. Uh, and and you could, I, I, I kid you not, honestly, the gradation from the Director General's office to the outside of the Cabinet room, and I had an office in Cabinet next to the DG for a period. Okay? Yeah. Uh, you could tell how close they were by how big their breasts were. <laughs> wow, is that right? <laughs> it was sort of like a sequence, you know, yeah. when you got there. So, but, but they were terrible when they came to my country because their sense of privilege, of course, havoc all over the place. Yeah, but um, yeah. anyway, I had um, Mayor coming into town when I put on this exhibition, uh, this program for the, the street gangs. Um, and I realised that the outside of the museum had columns and they were exactly out of the UNESCO logo. Okay, oh, it looked okay. like the logo. So what yeah, I yeah. did was have every column with U N E S C O, you know, fifty foot high letters. <laughs> so when the director came, I was able to take him through his own logo to see this <laughs> exhibition <laughs> to do with the kids. Anyway, um, there was one guy, a beautiful musician called uh, uh, Rusty, and um, uh, he was gothic. You know, he was motorcycle kind of guy, and he played percussion primarily. And the kids adored this guy. You know? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, um, and he was very creative. Like, for example, two examples. One, he, he had one concert that I partially supported uh, where his percussion instrument was a Kijang van with a person on each door slamming them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and another one, which I did support fully, uh, we had about 6,000 people there, you know, for this concert. Brilliant. It was outdoors. Yeah. And he comes on in the middle of this, uh, of the stage, uh, naked to the waist, and he sits in the chair, okay? And he's got this heart monitor attached to him, which is beating at about 150 decibels, okay, across yeah. all the loudspeaker system. So Brilliant. everybody, you know, ba-boom, ka-boom, ka-boom. But every time his heart beat, he'd have this little number, he'd go, pew, pew, a Japanese umbrella, he'd open and shut. <laughs> <laughs> and the point of it was, uh, this was the heart of the city, and his um, yeah. band caught the rhythm of his heart and built that into the music that then came from there. That's a fantastic idea. He was great, okay, and so yeah. the kids loved him and he was one of the key guys I had when I was working with the street gangs, okay. Now, the street gangs are serious. They kill about 100 people a year, as a matter of fact, you know. Most of them, interesting enough, are actually related to school areas or schools. Okay. Uh, that, that's the sort of the territory. They come out of the schools? Mm, they come out of the school areas. I'm not exactly sure yeah. they come out of the school or not, but they probably do a bit. You know? what, a, what age? Below 20s? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's sort of, oh, well, maybe a little bit older too. Um, okay. But, but, but pretty serious. Anyway, the thing is that uh, <laughs> after I got them involved in the music and so on, which they were involved in performing as well, uh, mainly percussion. Percussion, anyone can do it. So yeah, it yeah. really works really well. And... Um, but I got them to together 
because this is a peace thing between them, to together draw or paint posters of peace. Okay, yeah. So these big posters of peace are laid out on the on the floor, and I came across one gang leader talking to another gang leader. My bloody poster of peace is better than your fucking poster of peace. <laughs> no, no, that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had to re-persuade them a little bit on that, you know. Yeah, yeah. But as, as you know, because you've seen the the film. Uh, but then we worked particularly with with the children. This was later, after two thousand was two thousand and five. You know, when we started working with the children in Aceh. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that was so good, so powerful. In, yeah. In about uh, eight weeks, the children were so traumatized. This is after the after the, the tsunami, Boxing Day tsunami. Yeah, the Boxing Day tsunami. Hundred thousand people died. Something like no, that. No, much more. Much, much more, more. Was much it? Much more. And thirty-eight thousand children died Fire. in Aceh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one school that I worked with because my jo- one of my jobs was getting education, getting back again. Ninety-six um, percent of the children were killed. Oh, so the God. ones coming back, there are only six percent left. I mean, imagine what that was like, you know, yeah. for them. Oh, but some, of the, but the the children, many of the children had lost all of their relatives, and sometimes that was forty relatives they'd lost. Okay, Jesus. Some of the children had been swept by the wave up to two to three kilometers before they could hang onto a tree or find somewhere where they could save themselves. Okay, and they were just silent. Okay. Yeah, and I picked up the kids from the orphanages, particularly Mahana, uh, you know, one of the Islamic orphanages, Mahamadiyah. And um, when we started with them, they were frozen; they had nothing there. And what I've learned is, in fact, you can't get out of that by voice, by talking to them, getting through, because the, the story is fixed in their in their culture, in their mind, and everything else. Yeah. But what we could do is to help take them back to the basis of their self, which is back into their culture and recreate a kind of a world for them through culture and music and not voice, okay? Yep. And that's what we did. And we worked with um, the chief poet of Aceh, who was a very lovely man, and the kids adored this guy, who told them stories and so on. But what really mattered then too was to have discipline, not just allow the kids to play as they wanted. Discipline was critical, okay? Yeah. And uh, to take one example, the the girls in particular were involved in dance, not the boys. You know, this is a male-female thing in Islamic society, whatever. Yeah. There's a dance called the fishing net <coughs> dance, okay? And it's really, really fascinating to watch because seven or eight girls or young women uh, in a row with a single rope uh, between them. Yeah. In the course of the dance, they knit a fishing net. Wow. That's how the dance works. It's just that extraordinary to watch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary to watch, and it really is. But anyway, the point of all this is simply getting back to Stormo Yamashita, okay? Yeah. Uh, this was before the Ache program, but after the um, uh, the ones before it. Um, can you? Yeah, I'll top you up with this wonderful wine. <laughs> oh, good. Anyway, the um, uh, when the turn of the millennium came in, two th- in uh, 2000, of course, um, I decided that I'd put on a concert, okay? Okay. a sacred music concert. And there's several stories around this, <laughs> mainly concerning Stormo, but a bit more as well. <laughs> the thing is that um, uh, I was able to organise it in the four most sacred temples of Bali. Okay? Oh, wow. I had um, sacred music groups, 20 sacred music groups from around the world, because what I wanted to show was that the United Nations in the world, if we're facing a thousand years, 
we should not think of this in commercial terms. We must think of it in human and spiritual terms, yeah. period, okay? Which is why I brought these groups in. We had many, many, many people, uh, bands from Indonesia also involved in this. It was a really quite a big thing. The side story to this is I had to raise a quarter of a million dollars to do it because I certainly didn't have any budget for this, okay? Okay, yep. And because I'd prepared, over a period of time, had got to know some of the ministers very well, you know, and good friends and so on, I got... I knew basically what everything was happening right up to the palace, you know. And so yeah. But the thing is that uh, through this, I got um, a guy called Rahadi Ramalan, who'd actually taken over a network I'd run for the UN before I joined the UN full time, um, to put on a, a benefit night at his property, okay? Now, Rahadi, uh, and I like this guy, he's very friendly, very open and so on. Uh, Rahadi um, had um, obviously saved well. Yeah. He had a property of... Um, 11 hectares, which used to be a village with six houses on, one for his uh, gamelan collection, another for his 60 cars, and one for his wife, and, and so on, one for yeah. his art collection, whatever. So he saved well on his $150 a month, okay, for his salary. <laughs> oh, my word. And we put on this yeah. evening, and um, it started with... Uh, <laughs> uh, have you ever seen... There's a, a, a form of gamelan called jegong, from the east, west of Bali. Explain to the people what gamelan is. Oh, gam- I'm sorry. Gamelan is, um, I mean, you usually see what, what look like tin pots, you know. Okay. Yep. With, with playing. It's, it's a pentatonic scale, which means that it's, you can't really do anything that's out of attitude with anything be else. Right. It's the black keys on a piano almost. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yep. But, and, and it starts, interesting enough, it starts in a formal way. So it's, it's, but then it becomes uh, improvised. The whole, okay. Yep. Most of the middle of gamelan is improvised between, and then they get it back to formal and comes back to, you know, what's happening. It almost sounds jazz, but jazz. It's, it's like sort that. of, well, it's not like jazz, but that's the, the yeah, principle yeah, is the similar. Principle similar yeah. And in fact, at one stage, I, I, uh, when I was setting up this program, I worked with a guy called Kumang, I think his name was, Kumang, in, uh, in Bali, who was the main guru of gamelan for the whole of the island. Okay. Okay. And travelled the villages with him. And that was just fabulous because every village he went to, people wanted to play with, with this guy. Yeah. And, uh, you Fantastic. know, so learned some great things. But back to Stormer. Uh, sorry, back to the funding. Um, we, by the end of the... that uh, started with two Jagong bands, uh, uh, things. And the Jagong gamelan is totally different to these pot-looking things. Okay. It's played on bamboo pipes that may be 16 feet long and almost a foot wide, you know, down to small ones. And the guy sits on a saddle up the top of it and plays down on these bamboo pipes. It's amazingly dramatic. And the the classical way of doing it is like dueling banjos, with one gamelan going against the other one and they come jigging against the other. It's just brilliant. That's how we started this evening, okay? Yeah. And because he was the Minister of Trade and Industry, people sort of feel Indonesian context, sort of feel they'd be helpful to help gifts to make favour with the man who's responsible as a minister. So they did. And at the end of the evening, we had raised a quarter of a million dollars, and they show, he showed me the votes of money and so on. Now, Beautiful. several weeks later, I didn't have any of it. Okay. It had yeah. all disappeared somewhere. <laughs> oh, no. And because I had contacts and so on, I've checked around informally to find out what had actually happened. And it turned out that the woman who ran the evening, who was a director of one department in his ministry... That was also his mistress. And oh, she had decided for her own artistic pursuits to take 60% of the money. Okay. Yeah. At this stage, his wife found out and she took the rest. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sitting in the middle of this love, high level love triangle, love triangle oh, of corruption. No. 
and, and no money. And I'd already started contracts with people to come out from international, you know, overseas yeah, to, to get them there. Yeah. And this is where I learned one, uh, not, not uh, one, I applied one fundamental rule which I found of international diplomacy, which is never confront but surround. Okay? Ah, yes, yeah. And so what I did was to, uh, I wrote a highly effusive letter, congratulatory letter to Rahadi saying, look, it's such an important evening that you've created and this money that you've raised that you showed me following specific things just to put yeah, yeah. <laughs> it Yeah, it was there. Yeah, it was there. That, look, we, we have to celebrate this and show the world how important the things are that you have done. Uh, and I sent it to him my, through my deputy who had the diplomatic privilege as a diplomat to take it directly to his desk, not to give it to an assistant, but to give it to him personally, yeah. which mattered. And the end of the letter said it was such an important thing that I have already organised for the entire press quarter in Jakarta to be on your doorstep at nine o'clock Monday morning for the initial handover ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> and I dread oh, to think what his—I dread to think what his weekend was like with his mistress Try. and his wife. You know? <laughs> Do you think he got the money back off them, or did he have to come up with it somewhere else? Uh, I think he. I didn't actually explore that. Yes. However, I got nearly all the money back. It took two goes to get it, but I got it most of it That's back. a brilliant way of doing it. So you're not being offensive or anything. Oh, had I, if I challenged him, I, he would have said, rubbish, you know. Yeah, yeah. Me do you think he knew what you were doing? Very likely. Yeah. <laughs> Very likely. But you played the game a bit better. Yeah, but anyway, Stormo is the one I'm talking about. Yes, yeah, Stormo, the Japanese musician. He sounds right. Like, he's a percussionist, you were saying? Uh, mainly, but he can play anything else, but he mainly plays percussion. Is that okay. him? Is this Stormo? Yeah, probably. Yes, it is. It's Stormo. Oh, man, he looks like a cat. Oh, he was. Yeah. Amazing. He was rated by Time magazine as the most famous Japanese man in the world in the late 70s as a musician. Is that right? When Mick Jagger comes to Japan, this was a few years ago now, to, to travel, he plays with Stormer. Okay? Wow. He was part of that scene. Uh, the, yeah. Prior to that, he was actually a, a classical musician. He was playing as a teenager internationally. But then uh, he took on um, uh, being a pop muser uh, in Britain, I think it was, where his bass <laughs> was. really? Okay. And um, <laughs> uh, he became very famous in, in, in what he was doing. But... He then decided that it wasn't teaching him enough, so he just became a monk. Really? He just stopped being uh, being a major pop musician or rock musician and became a monk okay, for three years. Okay? That's it. And his job for three years by the abbot was to clean out a temple. Okay? That was his job. It took him three years to clean it out and fix it up. Came back to the abbot and said, you're abbotness, you know, what, what do I do next? And uh, the abbot said, I think you should go. Go play some music. Your music is made for the world, not for here. Now, what Stormy then did uh, is to, he found a guy called Maida uh, who had access to a stone from a temple, uh, from a, an island called Sanyukite, north of Japan. It's a okay. volcanic stone. And he is the only person allowed to use it. It is sacred. Okay. It has extraordinary tonal properties. I mean, it goes, the overtones go forever up in the sky, you know, in terms wow. of what the, the sound is. It's an amazing sound, okay? Yep. And he's created an instrument which has got a number of, uh, a pity I've got photos of all this, I could have given them to you. But anyway, oh, the we, thing can, is, we can put them can in you? later. Oh, yeah, good, good, sure. good, good, good. Um, it's probably about five or maybe six elements in it. You know, one looks like a xylophone, another one looks like a, a dynamo with things around the edges and so on. Okay. All yep. different shapes and so on. But the pitch range is 106, okay? That's much bigger than a piano. It's extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. And what he does specifically is to play this to bring different cultures or religions together in peace. 
Okay. So every year I go there, up, they bring me up until COVID uh, to Kyoto to work with these yeah. guys and actually lead this program. Um, uh, and and um, every year when, when this happens, uh, Stormo puts on a performance at uh, one of the major Buddhist, Buddhist temples. But it's to bring Buddhism and Shinto together. Okay. And they've never done it for 800 years. Wow. They haven't come okay. together. And I asked Storm, I said, why hadn't they done it before? He said, well, I guess they never thought about it. <laughs> yeah. I always considered Shinto as an offshoot of Buddhism or is it a completely no, it's, different it's, thing? No, it's, it's more a culture, than, a culture of, the, of the people rather than Buddhism itself. Okay. The values yeah. are sort of very much aligned, but it's not, quite, it's not the same at all. Yeah. Um, but the, the ceremony is extraordinary because it's, it's, in, a, uh, it's in this big what a big temple with gardens around it. And the Shinto come, everyone's dressed up in their robes or whatever. Yeah. And the Shinto come from the far distance of the garden, getting louder and louder and louder till they come in and they're, connect, they're connecting in their music. Okay. Yeah. With what Stormo is playing in his. In his That's instrument. fantastic. Yeah. And there was a really interesting thing last time I was there because they brought out a um, uh, choir from France, um, choral choir, a, um, where they play layer upon layer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Names down in my brain at the moment. I've was, uh, I know what you mean. I've been listening to a Dutch um, uh, Ernst Reitziger, and he does this layered. Or they don't even sing words. I don't think it's no. just these tones. The tones it's, are it's built incredible. on each other. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But when they ca- and they came out to Stormo invited them out. I think funded them to play at this temple at the same time. Yeah, and that would have been f- you were there. Gregor- yeah, I was there. Wow, um, it's fantastic. a Gregorian thing. That's yeah, right. yeah, Gregorian chant. Gregorian chant. Yeah. And uh, but it couldn't. It didn't work. Uh, you know, this was in the performances when they're practicing it in advance. And the why it didn't work was they were playing in a wooden temple. In Europe, they play in stone, oh, and so the reverberations comes back. And they in in the wooden temple, they could not hear the tones below and connect them together. So yep. they had to set up a whole microphone system and so on to actually make it work. Okay, which itself was. Kind of interesting about the difference between the building. You would never expect yeah, that to yeah, make absolutely. a difference, you know. It, well, I think everything starts in place. Yeah, uh, you know, if you're going to write a story, you've got to put it somewhere first. Right. Yeah. So Stormo came out of this, and he's become a very close friend of mine. But what then happened was that um, uh, Rano, the man that I mentioned before from Indonesia, who's my friend, we set up this um, uh, Sacred Bridge organization with. Yeah, yeah. Um, he uh, set up. He asked, he asked uh, Stormo and me. To come up to Bali, ooh, must have been 2014, 15, something like that. Um, okay. uh, because he wanted to build a culture centre, but at village level, and to communicate with village level people in other countries rather than internationally through the, country, you know, yeah. through the foreign affairs or whatever else. So we went around the Bali and we started looking at this. But what that, that didn't happen, what did happen, is my connection with Stormo. Because at that time, uh, the university in, uh, in Kyoto, which is uh, Doshisha, uh, had become uh, had just established under Japan to, uh, to become Japan's center for the creative economy. Okay, okay. And yeah. with these guys, I helped them design um, programs where we brought in the best people in the world to talk about a new economics. Okay, and my basic philosophy in that is to say economics is fundamentally about self-interest at the moment, and self-interest, in fact, is destructive of things such as inequality. And the ways that people are able to actually, you know, live yeah, in a yeah. world that's serious. In other words, um, my fundamental philosophy is to say that um, uh, economics, current uh, self-interest-based economics, currently provides, as it were, the grammar of the expression of humanity. 
Yeah. And humanity should be providing the grammar for the expression of economics. economics. As simple as that. Well, because it's just wrong as well. People, you know, they aren't rational actors when it comes to just purchasing things. You know, they, they generally don't. You know, they more, care more about their family of course. and friends than they do about themselves. And the consequence is absolute in terms of uh, creating inequality. I mean, the level of mm. inequality is amazing. You know, six men own as much worth wealth as 50% of the world. Yeah. And, and um, there's definitely damage. a problem, you know, <laughs> and there's, oh, I don't know, but they, those six people, 0.1 of 1%, they own the media. Exactly. And so right. I think what you were talking about before um, – Going village to village, you kind of have to do that. It's, like, yeah. it's almost like you have to go back to the town hall meetings and meet people face to face because if you try to use one of these um, media platforms, um, it's just not going to work because they don't want it to work. So um, yeah. I, I've noticed that um, that if you have a like, say you want a free Assange or something like that. Um, you, you'll want to commit suicide because they'll just show you nothing about negative stuff and you'll think you're all alone. And that's where I think going to a, a protest won't change the people in, in power's minds, but at least you'll know you're not alone. Yeah. You know, And there's a lot of people think the same way. And I think town hall meetings and, uh, and try and – I like what you're talking about, the music, because bringing it – everything's so heavy at the moment. Isn't it? You know, like it's, whereas as, as a musician as well, so I'm trying to think, how can I use what I do to to inform but not preach? And, and this, the world's a great place. You mm. know, every, we're in a major changing time. And the new, the new economic, I, in some ways I'm with Marx in that, that you can trace it back to economics. Like um, I think what you're doing is a great idea because follow the money. Well, yeah. I published the first book about that in 2018, okay? Yeah. And uh, I called it the Kyoto Manifesto for Global Economics, the oh, platform beautiful. of, uh, what was it, community, humanity, and spirituality. That was the first book, okay? And it was bringing Great together name. these yeah. the people we caught. Uh, and so, for example, then, but, then I, uh, but then I was bringing in continuous, or they, they as well, of course, together, we were working together, um, people from all over the world and... Um, there's a movement called the circular economy movement in Europe, for example, right now. I've heard of that. It's yeah. business-based, and yeah. the, the whole point of it is to is to uh, recycle everything, absolutely yep. everything, which doesn't mean just fixing you fix what comes out the end of the product. It means entire redesign of the nature of the production. Yeah, itself. absolutely. Okay. Anyway, I knew the um, uh, the woman who was particularly leading this in Europe called uh, Ladeja uh, Kosia. Okay. And I invited her to come out to Kyoto to, to talk about it. And if I can go again back to side stories, because the side no, stories within side stories, within yeah, side yeah. stories. The thing was that um, when I first set up the department in Wollongong, there are a few things, of sociology. Sociology okay. department, yep. Uh, the first part of this story is the fact that when I got the job, I'd come out from England and uh, I, I was in my sort of hippie-ish time. So I had to buy a suit in England. Okay, so this is coming back to the point. So the Chicago, then England, and then back to Australia. Uh, New South Wales University, then Wollongong. After yes, then yeah, back okay. to Australia. Yep. But I was also working three third of the time in Thailand all that time wow. for the University of Sussex on developing the sort of things we're just talking about. Before, yeah, yeah, okay. on, on so and that had lots of interesting stories on the side as well. But the point is that um, um, when. Um, uh, when I got to this, uh, I was brought out, the university brought me out from England, where I was at the time when I was appointed, and I had to buy a suit. Okay, so I built this winter in England, a suit yep. about 
you know, two inches thick mm. of wool, you know, uh, midsummer in Australia. And, oh, my of word. course, being brown, as I brought I thought appropriately, I had to buy a fairly bright yellow shirt to go with this, OK? And <laughs> just before I got to the, to the interview, uh, I had to go to the toilet, of course, and I did not notice that I'd actually left the corner of my yellow shirt sticking out of my fly when I arrived for the meeting. <laughs> and they still appointed me, the idiots. You know. but, but, <laughs> the thing was that um, uh, particularly Jim Hagen, who's a great guy, he's a historian, whatever, he wanted to do things on, uh, wanted sociologists to work on immigration industry, things that Wollongong was about. And I said, okay, that's fine. I've done a bit of work on most of that. Uh, but what you really need is somebody who knows the nature of the knowledge behind it. And I was working into an area of sociology of consciousness, okay? Phenomenology. Uh, now, this is coming yeah. back to Stormer. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I've, I've been, been reading a, a bit about, about phenomenology. I'm actually reading a book on it at the oh, moment. Indeed. So, f- phenomenons, physical, actual, touchable things, as, sure. as opposed to the ethereal connections. Yes. Anyway, um, and somehow I'd, I'd been able to attract. Uh, the guru in the field from Harvard and, and then Germany uh, called Tom Lookman. Okay, he came to work with me for six months, you know, in Australia. Came down to Wollongong. Yes, wow. and this was the first year of my job. Okay, and everyone was a bit impressed by that. But anyway, the point of the connection is this: <coughs> I got Ladija out from Germany, uh, from Slovenia, I should say, to come to to Indonesia to do, to talk about this movement. And I was talking to Ladija about the. Um, uh, what we're doing and so on. And I said, oh, look, you know, we just went back, we were talking about th- ideas and stuff. And I said, oh, I used to work with them um, on phenomenology. I used to get Tom Lookman to come. He came out to work with me. That's my stepfather. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible connection to yeah. this remote woman in Slovenia <laughs> on <laughs> circular economy stuff. Yeah, know? yeah. And so, of course, we have a very good relationship since that. You know? That's great. <laughs> so that was the first book. The second one I've just is publishing literally now. Yeah, uh, and um, it's a follow-up to that book. It's a follow-up, but it's called the uh, Kyoto Post-COVID Manifesto for Global Economics, yeah. confronting our shattered society. Okay, and I've written almost to that, nearly all of that myself. But the, the, uh, it's the message the same, but in the context of way what difference COVID has actually made for a lot of things going on right now. Okay? Well, it's, it's economically, there's such a big change. That, uh, I think if geopolitically, if you look what's happening with the world island, Russia, China. India now, like this is this is some big things going on, and it's um, I don't know they'll be studying this in a thousand years. Well, what I found more attractive than anything uh, was something that never happened when it was my career to have publications and stuff, which I did a lot of, of course. Yeah, and um, I sent the manuscript to the publisher Springer, and I was op- op- working through the uh, the Tokyo office because it okay. I was work- because I was working with this institute in Japan and within seven hours they answered saying we love your book we're going to publish it immediately wow this is not usual they'd already read it they they, she quoted back things that she'd actually read and said I like this particular bits and so on and so on and it was in a production three weeks later okay wow Uh, so that's been really good and they also accepted that I've decided that most books are pretty boring because you've got to read them (laughs) Yeah. So I've developed uh, pictures um, mm. to tell the story, and I sent them a picture because Springer had never done it before. 
Um, and it's about the difference between, you know, uh, with images and so on. I just constructed it myself. And she said, they told me the story of the book in a second. You can have them all, you know. So it's now the book now has pictures for it, uh, for the opening, for the whole book, for the introduction and the two conclusions chapters I've written as well. So it's a, it's a way of sort of communicating. Yeah, yeah. So people can read and see and so on. Anyway, that's coming out literally within weeks right now. For the the first um, Kyoto book you did, did you get um, what was the uh, what did the professionals, the econo- uh, economists, think about it? Uh, the ones that I liked loved it. <laughs> uh, the only ones that matter. <laughs> yeah, of course it is. You know, I, I find you know I, I think if you're going to do economics, you might as well bring your tarot cards out at the same time. And no, no sorry, no. But the key thing is this. Um, in parallel and a bit afterwards, uh, there's a quite a strong movement coming out of Oxford University uh, and also the head of the British economy before, uh, whatever his name was, who's now gone to the UN, uh, yeah. saying very, very similar things. Okay? okay. So it's becoming a new way of thinking about economics. Okay? And, do you th- I'm th- and tying that into the... Um, oh, sorry, what was the, the 100%... Um, uh, what you t- the lady you're talking about, lovely civilian lady? Oh, oh, um, what is, that's uh, no, no. She wasn't the one about the book. She just she's right. Yeah, she she's doing the. She, she wrote a chapter for me because oh, what I did she, was yep. I've written the message and then I've got people selected to write particular oh, things that are experts on that particular area, so yeah. we can build that into the argument. And she's okay? talking about designing things a hundred percent of their life cycle. Uh, uh, it reminds me of um, a really saying I love from Buckminster Fuller. Mm. Uh, he was talking about uh, there's no such things. There's no such thing as um, <laughs> where is he? He's good. Oh, he's good. He is. He's onto <laughs> no such things as as rubbish. You know, as waste. That's just a resource in the wrong place. And um, yeah, Bucky point. was talking about. He's my favorite. He's kind of my guru. You know, and um, absolutely, he's talking about the stuff in the 1920s. Yeah, I know. It's a design science, and he, personally, he tried to get away from politics altogether. And he, he made a point which. <coughs> I only used the other day, I think it's really valid, that uh, uh, if we left it up to politicians, uh, we'd still be hanging out in trees chucking stones at each other. <laughs> you know, the, the way society changes is through design and engineering. You know, if you build, if you have two tribes and they're drowning, you know, they're a left tribe and a right tribe and they've got to cross this river and they're fighting over the river and, you know, there's X amount of deaths every year, you don't have to talk to either of them. All you have to do is build a bridge. Mm-hmm. And it's, the people will use the bridge. It doesn't need to be a political, a political discussion about that bridge. You just need to build it. But this goes back to, I think, a, a problem we're finding in the West. Uh, the one of our major problem with our democracy is the way they've gone. Australia's classic example is the uh, NBN. We mm-hmm. have one uh, this thing which just should be a normal piece of infrastructure. It shouldn't be, should be apolitical. It doesn't matter. But. A you know, political party A decides to do it. Uh, three years later, political party B gets in and decides to wreck it because they yeah. don't want a legacy for party A. Yeah. So, um, do you see any way around that? We're getting off topic a little bit, but that's <laughs> you know, with your economics, there's so much going on, though, isn't it? There's a whole. As we we know the ideas of of what's the right thing to do. I asked you before when we um, when we met at the cafe whether you thought this new economics could happen within the system or or will it need to happen outside the system? The starting point is at the level of community yep. and building from there. And it is very possible to build internationally from there. 
Excellent. And yep. if I may tell you a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah Another story. Yeah, I love them. <laughs> this is great. Um, <coughs> and it is back into the UN. Uh, but it's certainly about how to make the international connection work. Okay. But it started because when I arrived in Jakarta, the, uh, the office I took over had been the uh, science office of, the United, of UNESCO since the number two office in the world that they created to go way back. Okay. But they hadn't done anything else. Okay. Um, and UNESCO, is a manda- its mandate for the United Nations is responsible for science, education, social science, culture, and therefore world heritage, and media freedom. Okay, that was my mandate. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. And that's a pretty broad mandate. A lot yeah, of things yeah. you can you know, need to do. Anyway, um, so I started to, I was able to start building in each of the other areas into my office. So I started with an office of 25 and ended up with about 120 by the time I left or something like that. And, you know, other things all over the place. But the point was that um, <coughs> what, what we did first was to go out to the islands in, the, in Jakarta Bay, okay, and work with the fishermen on, on the islands um, to, yep. show, to show them how they could actually make more money by not polluting, tossing stuff into the ocean, by actually using the ocean to, uh, or the products coming out of excuse me, the ocean apart from fish yep. to actually make money, okay? And that worked, and we started... Not that that was where all the pollution in Jakarta Bay was coming from, but it was certainly one of the areas. But um, And Jakarta Bay, if you've ever been there, uh, uh, certainly when I was there, you go 30 kilometres out from Jakarta itself and it's still polluted. It's just really? yep. you know, crap all over. Because there's seven or eight river systems that come down from the mountains through Jakarta. And, yep. for example, the uh, the markets and the people, they just throw everything into the river going past and it goes out into the bay. You know? There's an image. Yes, that's that's exactly what it's like. Yep. And that wow. goes at 30 kilometres. Okay. Yep. So what we did, we worked with them first, but what I then did, and these, these people are magic, I brought in the children from the schools to go out to the islands to have a look and get excited about it, okay? Yeah. And then we brought them back and we sent them around the markets, the traditional markets, to talk to the people in the markets. Of course, children, you can't stop them. You can't stop, you know. Yeah. That, and they said, you know, and they showed them, and we could prove to them that they could make 30% more money. By, by saving the stuff and doing something different with it, okay? Yeah. But the children were my ambassadors, okay? They worked brilliantly. Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, yeah. now the next stage was then to choose three villages where I put it into practice, okay? Yeah. Um, the, one of them, and this is a side story to the side story within the side story, <laughs> um, when the May 1998 revolution came, uh, Chinese were at risk fundamentally because a lot of it was absolutely staged Behind it was Probova and uh, militia that he'd personally paid, brought into town, okay. were loaded off trucks, you know, one after another just to attack different areas. I mean, it was totally controlled. Wow, okay. Uh, in fact, for me, uh, I actually had to escape my house. Um, there are after you as well. Uh, I was living in a reasonably Chinese area, but still. Yeah. Uh, what had happened was that um, uh, already the, um, the local shopping centre was aflames and the people had products they'd been able to take out of it and they were going past my house back to their village. Okay. Um, the In the distance, I could hear the, the really serious mobs coming. I could hear them, okay? Uh, at this stage, I had two um, guards, satpans, uh, who were supposed to be responsible for my security. I found them dressed in civvies, jumping over the fence, running away. <laughs> and I thought, this is not a good situation. <laughs> my only, Tibet, my only, <laughs> only protection at this stage was a, about a one-foot-high Tibetan spaniel, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you 
Barrett, if you don't know about Tibetan spaniels, what look like lions on Tibetan temples are spaniels. Okay? Are they re- oh, yes, really? They're That's dogs. Them. They're the dogs. dogs. Okay. Because they're incredible guard dogs, okay? Mm. And this little guy would you know, attack any bloody thing, no matter how big it was. You know, it was incredible. Yeah, go. But yeah. that didn't seem like it was enough, you know. So, <laughs> no. I, so I had to escape and literally at 2 o'clock in the morning through the mobs and the fires and oh. got out of it and a lot of other things happened after that. But still, we got out. And then I had to evacuate all the... First thing I did was get the families out straight away. And then the after this, I got the um, uh, my own staff. It got worse and worse. And um, <clears throat> I got my own staff to, uh, if they were locals, I sent them back to their village because uh, they were safe. And uh, I had already set up a very careful system of communication, uh, which went through layers, okay? So, for example, if the communication didn't get through to this guy, it went to the next one, who then did all the other ones below him as well. Okay. And I also involved all of the uh, the staff of the people in case they weren't in the house to take the next step as well. Anyway, this actually saved the lives of two people, two women, who oh, would have wow. been otherwise caught up in the middle of this, but we were able to get messages to them. Yeah. And I could get to everybody in my offices within 20 minutes, 20 minutes, okay, to get them out. Brilliant. It worked. Anyway, yeah. so we did a lot. Um, but um, in the middle of all this... Um, the um, uh, when the rev- when the revolution hit, uh, we were what are we talking about the. Um, uh, yeah, we're talking the what Prabowo. Oh, sorry, Prabowo. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So he he was sort of behind the scenes, oh, know, yeah, causing yeah, yeah. most of the problems which were going on and so on. And I got and we got the people out and so on. Um, but then um, we had to. Um, uh, then actually adjusted this, and this is when I moved my house from uh, the university. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, the the building I should say UNESCO across to another another building and and in in the suburbs and and, and so on and so on. Okay, but they were yep. sort of interesting, as it were, times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But Probovo, yeah, um, Probovo was sort of very much behind this, and he was behind what was going on in Papua as well. And so we had quite a lot of conflict going on at the same time as the revolution was going by. Yep. Oh, my word. Interesting times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't seem to have stopped either, do they? So, yeah. This is great. Uh, well, one of the, uh, I was going to say, I mean, if you're interested to explore this, we can sort of again, again look at... We um, were going to go back to Stromo, I think. I'm sorry, of course we were. And we were... And you... How did you go end up at Kyoto University? Which... So we were... This was the arc that we're coming back around to. Stormer was involved, uh, he, he made this connection back to the economic group in Kyoto that had just been established. Yes. And that then became what we're doing, okay? Now, Stormo and I have become very close friends, okay, and, and we work together a lot, and he has these, um, uh, he's sort of behind the scenes rather than in the middle of anything that we're doing, but his values and what he does in music are absolutely what we're trying to do in words and, uh, and ways of talking about economics. Yeah. It's the same. And to me, what is happening, as I was saying before, is that it's coming back fundamentally to the people and to intersubjective relationships. Now, the story I can quite finish, I'm sorry, now I know where I am, yeah, yeah. was about this um, uh, working with the village people on environmental issues in, that's in right. Indonesia. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry, I just lost myself in a minute. No, oh, that's cool. And um, so, but one of the villages. <coughs> that we'd already brought the people together, and it was both Chinese and Japanese people in this this village. Okay, yeah. Uh, the the uh, this squad of of um, 
people coming in to kill the Chinese arrived at the village. And all of the Japanese men stood around the whole village and, and pissed them off and said, go away, and they succeeded. Wow. They saved the Chinese because for the first time, the village, because we'd done it around environmental issues, had become cohesive. Okay? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they protected the Chinese. Okay? Now, but the village that I worked on most was a village called Banjasari, okay? And it was a not total slum, but it was a sort of a very, very low-income village, which or village within Jakarta. Um, okay, yep. Sort of expressways nearby, over the top, almost part of it anyway. And um, But we had connections into, into Banjasari, and we started to work with the people about building their own environment to be a, a green environment, okay? Yep. And they became very interested in doing this. So, for example, we got them to... to um, uh, grow organic plants and so on so they could actually sell them and make money out of it. Uh, we got them growing plants they could uh, take along and to hire in, in high-rise buildings for offices and things so they could hire yeah, them yeah. out and make money from them. Yep. Uh, the young people became involved in recycling paper and so on and so on. So to take the example which I may have mentioned I think before we started speaking here, um, uh, I was able to get. They started working on origami, and I was able to get somebody. Yeah, from yeah. Them. I saw the photos. We'll put them out. Isn't oh, good. Yeah, 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 yeah. From Tokyo to come out to show what was selling, selling in department stores in Tokyo, and they did that. And then they did something really good all by themselves. They and I've got two of these at home, uh, kerosene tins. You know, which is about two feet, three to three. I don't know that size. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Whatever. Um, what they did was to paint the outside of them with cartoon characters about environmental friendliness, okay? They're really quite good. Yep. And they took them out on the streets. It cost them five, 50 cents to get the tin and make it, and they're selling for $5 or equivalent. And within the first day, a French guy came along and bought 150 okay? Wow. Immediately. Yeah. And the young people, of course, involved in doing this and got really excited and so on. So, and we kept doing this and we then had a few, I, I did two key things where I had a major launching of something. One was to launch a garbage bin, okay? Yep. Because we had to develop a garbage bin for the community that would separate the luggage, where they could separate the luggage, okay? Okay, yep. Secondly, it couldn't be for every, yard, every house because they're too close together. So it had to be close enough that they would walk there to put their rubbish in it, but not too far. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we had to organise exactly where these bins went, and we made them. We got them to choose how to make it. You know, they gave they they set up a contest for them to make this bin with a prize. You know. Yeah, yeah. And there was basically a forty-four gallon drum with different ways you stuck things in and out and so on, which worked really in different colours. Okay, which worked really well. And I launched this garbage bin officially on behalf of you know the United Nations. I thought that was quite useful. <laughs> That's great. But then I did another job where I launched a uh, a carry cart for the for the um, the young guys, the young kids or guys that did you know, the you know, penniless who used to sort of collect the rubbish. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I gave them the job of setting up their cart so that they could separate the rubbish when they got it. And it was a very simple thing. They stuck a thing down the middle and that was what I, Again, I had an official ceremony to give them a prize for <laughs> designing this cart. Okay. So they got really involved in it and it became yeah. a really big thing. And then um, uh, uh, companies doing you know, herbal products and medicine and so on became involved and built companies and businesses there. And it became uh, declared by the... Uh, the mayor of Jakarta, as the the governor of Jakarta, as the ecotourism site of Jakarta, the city. Okay, this village, wow, this village, okay, okay? Yeah. which was amazing, you know, and that of course led more people. Now, my point of telling the story was about the international bit. Okay, yeah, and my point about that is that you create something that is real, 
that can be seen at a community level where people can understand it and connect it and do it themselves, okay? Yeah. And then draw people in. But, you know, so we had, uh, I think, probably, at least when I lived, about 220 different groups that came in every year, okay? Uh, I was able to build these things or to get them accepted by the Navy so that they build the same uh, arrangement around the naval depots, the villages close to the naval depots. I got the Boy Scouts movement involved of a million young young men involved and they they came and they took it back to their villages and they did it around Indonesia. And we're getting getting people internationally coming in as well. but again, we, were, we then had people who could mentor and even go there if we wanted them to follow them up. Okay? So yeah. for me, coming back to your question about how do you make change happen, uh, yeah. I believe you make change happen where the people are and where subjective interaction is, and that's at the community. It is not at international formal meetings at all. So yeah. You build it there, you make it really work, and you then build connections with follow-up that allow it to start spreading to become yeah. a global, more interested movement. And as I've said earlier, uh, the key thing, I think, right now in, in the movement in economics, and this is also the position of the uh, Australia Institute, uh, is that it's fundamentally back to the local, to the culture, Absolutely. To, to, the, yep. to the community, which is where creativity is and where the individual is. And if you look at the sources of wealth, particularly that have come out of, for example, of uh, you know the new... Uh, entrepreneurs who've done lots of things, have created Facebook and all yeah, those yeah. sorts of things. They've, they've come out of a guy in a garage, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So what you then have to do is more than that, okay? You have to build an environment that is nutritive for these things to happen, okay? You've got to have good soil. That's a classic. That's what I've been saying. <laughs> yeah. That's my saying a million times about the music industry, like we're going back to the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. The Beatles, if they had landed probably in Wollongong now, they They'd end up be being nothing. teachers or something. It wouldn't happen because there's not the soil here. There's not. You've got to have the crowd to come to see the show. You've got to have people putting on the shows, artists around the stuff. You've got to have. They had to have record producers there to, ready to put these things out. Without that soil, any you know, without good soil, the seed will just die. No matter how good the seed is. Absolutely right. Mm. Now that that is basic, and that's what I found exactly the same. Yeah, you've got to build a nutritive environment. <laughs> um, there's some really interesting lessons out of India, as a matter of fact. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. There's a university, for example, which is the Barefoot University that works specifically with village and particularly village women, yeah. uh, introducing uh, you know, things like um, uh, eco tour, eco, sorry, eco-friendly uh, production systems and whatever the hell else. Yeah. And the women, be- you know, they're absolutely untrained in anything, illiterate. Yeah. But they learn it and they become the hub. For other things I to think happen. I might have seen something similar to that happen in, in Africa where they're setting up, there's a, a program to set up solar panels, but they don't, they, originally they go into villages and because there's no lights there. So the kids, they have to work and then they go to study and there's no light. You know, so um, solar panels will at least give them a bit of light at night time. But they're finding they need, they can't have engineers going out setting these things up. So they want to train the locals. They started training local men and they would just basically bugger off <laughs> with the solar panels and that. And the, and the young mums were too busy with the kids. So it was actually the grandmothers. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that was amazing. That was, that's what, some, this, this program, thing. Same, same thing. In similar India, thing. In yeah. Exactly. And, and also they, they had a, 
I think the grandmothers are, are the foundation of the culture. Really, you know, like I think females, us men are pretty useless at keeping things together and calling <laughs> each other up and yeah. seeing how we are. But you know, old ladies are, are where it's at. They're a power. They are <laughs> the babushkas. You know, that's where it's at. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. There's definitely hope there, mm. isn't there? I, I think, and it's everywhere. And it's like I, what I can see um, is that. There's a massive change going on, and there's a way out of it, and it's going to be a better way. But you know, it's like Bucky said again. You know, we're in a birth canal, and um, it's the most dangerous place for a baby. You know, and so we could either we've got to get through this. You know, we've only got one planet. We've got to look after, it and and the system we have at the moment isn't doing it. And it's running out fast. It's running out fast, but all the answers are there. Hmm. You know, we can. Well, you know, you take your mobile phone. If you go back to the 60s, same with that computing power would weigh probably 30 tonne or something, you know. So we, we're doing, we can do more and more of less and less. Mm. And I think to talk about them again, uh, our economic system was one based on Malthusian idea that there's not enough to go around. Um, there is now. You know, the, the earth, you know, we produce a lot of things. There's mm. enough. For everyone, so we need to go from an economics of scarcity to an almost an economics of abundance. And how do we reshape our societies now that there is enough? You know, can can the monkeys, as we are, get over our primal instincts and actually help each other out? Mm. Um, That's critical for the future. I totally agree with you about that. Yes, but I also think it starts at the level of the people and their subjective world, not at the level of big. It's not top-down. Political, no, it's not top-down yeah. at all. And that is reflected in the nature of the movements in economics, generally. Yeah. It is actually changing in that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's and fantastic. to me, this, is, this, is the, this has to be the future of humanity. It comes back to our, our actual subjective humanness, mm. not systems of abstract economic criteria and politicians making great declarations. It's not that at all. And... And homogeneity? Is that even the word? Can be. Like we're we're yeah. talk, talking it about... It is now. <laughs> it is now. But oh, I've been thinking about Japan a lot. Um, enough for what I found this. I found a show on TV. It's great. It's called Old Enough. And it's about Japanese kids' first errand. And they get these little two-year-olds and mum will get the two-year-old to go down the shop and buy some apples. And they follow the two... And it's a kilometre walk wow. along a main road. Wow. You really? know, I've got a three-year-old. There's no way. God, brave. <laughs> it's amazing. They follow these kids around. And the kids, are, it's, it's great TV. You got to watch... It's called Old Enough. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, I've watched like 20 of these bloody things so far. And... I'm glad Japanese culture exists. You know, like there's we're we're kind of going off the economic thing now, but I think there's a debate about liberalism. Japanese culture so has its own idiosyncrasies. It's got a culture, um, but if if it, if it was a Western liberal democracy, it would be would it have to become a multicultural place and lose its identity? Is, is there a place for individual cultural identity in the world if, if we're now a multicultural world and everything's, you know, can you even have that discussion without sounding racist? I'm not sure. Uh, one of the things about going to Japan is that anywhere you go, it's safe. Always. Yes. Male, female, day, That's night. That's what it's shown with these two-year-old kids walking down the road. Right? We couldn't do it in Australia. No, but, but it's safe from people 
causing problems for you. I mean, it's just an extraordinary culture like that. And yeah. then behind this is a lot of uh, cultural things that have happened that have been built into the institutional structures of or the fabric of life. And yeah. I'll give you one very important one. And it is in. Uh, it, it came out of longer term, uh, traditional, not traditional, longer term uh, industrial development from you know some long hundred, two hundred years ago. But okay. it's still applied in a number of um, companies now, and it's a basic rule. And it's the three party rule. In other words, anything we do is good for us, for the client, and for the society. And if it's not good for all three, it doesn't happen. That's brilliant. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, it's all, it's better than the Chinese win-win because that's only two. You need it's got to be three. Absolutely, there's always an extra party there. Always, uh, and the thing about that is then it's built into the culture of the organisation. So and built. Up, uh, and I talk about culture a lot, and I don't want to make it sort of sound trivial. Uh, the culture is the meaning system by which we do things, or the live live by. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's creating the, as it were, the surrounding. Um, balloon within which we are living and operating and making sense of the world, okay? Yeah. And, for example, if you look at people coming together, you'll find the two cultures may be clashing and the balloons crash, but you clash. But you'll also find ways in which you get interactions between them when they start to get some kind of cohesion about the, the overall yeah. way of doing things. So, for example, the what then becomes, what then moves through, it's not just agreeing with this, this sort of philosophy, is then built into the way that the organisation runs. So, for example, um, there's a new particular uh, way of doing things, which is called the amoeba principle, okay? In other words, the working groups are small, okay? Yeah. And I absolutely support this because it allows you to create the... The, the culture of people actually working together, you know, and, and yeah. living together and having subjective relations and so on. But the normative structure of each of these groups within the overall organisation is one where these three basic principles are absolute for all of them, okay? Yeah. So it doesn't matter where you are, what you're going to do next, wherever you go in the organisation, the same principles are there as part of the overall culture and the way of doing things and that meaning, the meaning of things in that organisation as a whole. That's and that's how you can create it. And uh, I, f I suppose Western capitalism, the fundamental problem with it is that there is no third party. And so if you and I do a deal, which is great for us, but it means that Adam's going to choke, we don't care because... Oh, I good. care about Adam. Yeah, we care about Adam. He's but looking after the bloody... He, yeah, the he's, he's doing a good we job Adam. there. <laughs> but yes, yeah, the, me. That's right. Well, I, 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 I suppose that the classic is, is the environmental problem. You know, like even if it's just oil spills or, or things like that, you sure. and I do a deal. Um, we save some money on some safety equipment and all that. And you know, let's let's say the Congo gets flooded with oil, but it's not our problem. Yep. You know, so that's um, a, wow. That's a structural change that's got to happen. Uh, but at least we've got a starting point. Mm, exactly. You know, that's bloody great. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. We've been going almost two hours now. Oh, well, have we really? I'm so sorry. No, no, this is great. We could keep going, but I think we might have to get you back on. For well, let, let me just start finish with one story. Yeah, please do. Just, yeah, just, just please one, because yeah, there's yeah, a few other sure. things I didn't talk about, which I was going to, but this one particularly. Well, we can uh, keep going if you're right. I don't, I don't mind. Like, I don't care. I'm not yeah, going yeah. anywhere much. But yeah, I'll have going. another beer. Well, have another beer. Right. We could still, oh, well, let's try and finish this bottle of wine. I don't need to try. <clears throat> no, it's only that um, I found um, being a little creative at times kind of helped a lot in terms of doing things, and, and this is even in the diplomatic world in particular, you know. 
And uh, the particular story I was going to tell you was this about uh, Fidel Ramos, who's the president of the Philippines, okay? Yeah. He was the guy who was behind the signing of the final peace within the Mindanao and so on in 1996. That was um, after Marcos, obviously. Oh, yeah. Was he the next one after Marcos? Uh, he, no. Um, oh, just one. No, there was a guy before him. Mm. Um, but Ramos was anyway. He, but I really liked this guy, and uh, we oh, got on cool. personally yep. very well as well. And um, but uh, one of my jobs was to get uh, every one of my presidents uh, to sign an international ocean treaty charter. Charter. Okay, it wasn't mandatory. It basically said we think oceans are good. We'll do all we can to make sure we save them. You know. Okay. Yep. And in the case of Habibi from Indonesia, uh, he put on this incredible display out at Manado in Sulawesi um, with flypasts of planes and ships and, <laughs> and you know, foremasts and schooners. And it was just amazing sort of stuff. And, and it yeah. was just bullshit. You know, but yeah. still, it was, you know, we <laughs> a lot signed. A yeah. lot of fun. And it's all signed on board his ship, which I've done, and pictures of that too. But in the case of Ramos, I knew he was a scuba diver, okay, and that he liked the oceans. He actually liked the oceans. Yeah. And so uh, I sent this perhaps foolish idea across to the president's office to say, why don't we sign it underwater, okay? Yeah. And he agreed, okay. <laughs> and that scared the shit out of me because I'd, I'd learned scuba diving, but it wasn't very good at it at all. Yeah. So I, thank God I had some friends who'd take me out on Jakarta Bay and they owned three islands, you know. So mm. they actually brought a master diver along and, and helped me. But the difference there compared to normal scuba diving was that um, uh, I would stand on the back of the boat. They would literally dress me and lower me carefully into the water and follow me about two paces behind with yeah. the boat over the top. So I was certainly excited. Anyway. That's by the way. <laughs> uh, but I did have a bit of practice. Yeah. At this stage, um, the, the, the president's office came back and said, but this is now for CNN, for big international media. Uh, we want this, because uh, I had it on diveboard material, which is Phil's cap-sized page. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because yep. I had divers working in, in my office, marine, marine scientists. And, um, uh, and they said, we want something big. Okay, so I commissioned UNDP, United Nations Development Program, the main office in, in Manila, to make a big one, so two two meters by one meter, big board, you know. Which okay, yeah, yeah, water yeah. And so on. Okay, and we had a problem because when we got in the water, it was made on plastic, and nothing would sign it. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. we're sitting there with CNN, oh, no. BBN, yeah. and nothing would sign this bloody large piece of plastic. Okay, until <laughs> until we borrowed the lipstick from the CNN reporter and did the t- oh, signature yeah. in lipstick. Lipstick worked. Uh, yes, lipstick worked. And so I guarantee this is the only international treaty signed underwater by a president in lipstick. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think I could stand fairly carefully with that oh, one. That's great. But what then happened, and, and I, had, I really enjoyed Fidel Ramos, and I had lunch with him afterwards, of course, we had a chat about this. And, he's, and he told me that um, uh, he, where he's going to put it, and I assume it's there now, in Batangas Bay, which is north, 110 kilometres north of Manila, um, uh, he's got a Christian cross at 20 metres underwater, okay? Okay. And the yeah. reason he's got it there, he told me, he said, look, the reason is uh, this is a religious country, okay? The only day I have off is Sunday. And I've got <laughs> to go to church. <laughs> Perfect. So yeah, I, yeah. Built a, I built a cross <laughs> down the bottom and I can go diving and so I'm in my personal chapel. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I haven't been down to look, but uh, it's, next, there. It's, it's next to the Christian cross. At 20 metres underwater in Batangas Bay, the only international treaty signed in lipstick by a president yeah. uh, to preserve the oceans. 
Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so, what a great story. There were some creative bits that one could do in the job. Yeah. <laughs> it's Thank become more fun. Lipstick. Oh, cheers. Cheers. Mm. Um, look, there's other things I was going to talk about if you want to, but it's up to you. No, yeah, give us another one. Uh, I've talked about, sorry, this is not for broadcasting just yet. I'm just sort of yeah, so definitely on your. Kyoto, that's the geisha. That still an, that's an ancient part of Japan, isn't it? And is that the geisha capital, Kyoto? I'm it's the most ancient capital. Um, mm. I wouldn't have. I, well, you maybe, didn't see maybe you're right. Walking around, yeah, yeah, you do. Actually, you do. In the, in um, it's the Hokkaido Road. Yes, uh, no, no. I mean, uh, there's a. I mean, particularly uh, Stormlight take me to a couple of uh, some of the really interesting backstreet restaurants, which were fantastic. Oh, you know, I think if you're going, you got to go with a guide. Yeah. You speak Japanese. Uh, I've got a friend who goes over there quite well, semi-regularly. We're, we're guitarists and stuff. And he's telling me about this guitar um, street in Tokyo. And you go into a guitar shop and they don't have like, you know, 50 guitars or 100. They've got thousands, like rainbow-coloured you know, Les Pauls and stuff. It just sounds like bloody paradise to me. You know? <laughs> a a very different street I found in Taiwan, okay? Yeah, okay. Um, because uh, particularly when I was working, uh, Taiwan was not part of my mandate with the UN because it's not able to be a member. Okay? Well, it's not officially a country unless we want to go apologising to some people. But it was of APEC. John Cena. And um, <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, because I'd worked a lot in Asia before, Australia made me their first chairman of APEC, okay? Oh, no Back way, in really? Early, uh, yeah, I was chairman Far of APEC. Out. Okay, uh, uh, but responsible for there were several chairmen <coughs> responsible for a number of areas, and I was responsible for uh, human resource and technical education stuff like that, etc. Okay, anyway, yeah. Taiwan and China were two of my members, and I was chairman of meetings between Taiwan and China, which yeah. required a lot of learning about diplomatic activity and how you actually handle this. Anyway, yeah, yeah. But I went to Taiwan a few times as part of this. Okay, and where they entertain you in in uh, in the capital is uh, Snake Street, particularly. And this street has got every second building is a snake restaurant in Taipei. Wow, okay. really? And every building in between is a karate studio. <laughs> so <laughs> karate is very Kai. It's a very masculine area, I tell yeah. you. Okay, but the thing is then, and of course I went as the honoured guest, which can be a disadvantage, I can assure you. Yeah. <laughs> because, again, that meant I had to eat first and before anyone else would touch their food, okay? <laughs> okay. And this happened all the bloody time that I was yeah. in these jobs, okay? And what happened there was that <clears throat> they, um, uh, the way it's, uh, the snake is served is it comes in by itself across the floor, okay? And the more oh. poisonous the snake, they believe the best taste it is. So the more poisonous it is, you get this very, very poisonous snake coming in over the floor to you, you know. Oh, my God. And the leader of this group then picks the snake up by the neck, cuts its head off, and pours the blood into your glass of brandy, which you must have before, <laughs> which you must have immediately before yeah, anyone yeah. will touch anything else, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh and then they come back, of course, with the snake, you know, in some so kind of form. Yeah. Yeah. But, of course, no one will any anything till I do. Okay. Yeah. Which oh. was a little difficult number of times. But, oh, Jesus. Uh, I learned, no, Jesus wasn't there at he all. He wasn't no, there. Not, not in Taiwan. He should have um, been. <laughs> flavor? Don't say it's like chicken. I wouldn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, flavor was not what I was concentrating on. <laughs> it was survival. <laughs> I know there's a, a, 
a pub or a bar somewhere in Texas where they've got rattlesnakes in a, a whiskey barrel. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, and the poison slowly leaked out into the barrel and all that. So, oh wow! Now, the yeah. restaurant I heard about, but I haven't been there in the United States, was one that particularly works with roadkill. Okay, <laughs> roadkill. They get they roadkill. They only they only cook roadkill, and their motto <laughs> is their motto is from your grill to ours. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that would attract me a lot. <laughs> wow, that has to be a fresh kill, you know, especially in that hot sun, if it, you know. Oh, yeah. I presume. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, mm. Look, I was going to talk about crises and stuff like that and what goes on. I've talked about that a bit already, really. Um, mm. um, I'm looking forward to your book coming out. Where can someone get a copy of that? It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon? I saw it. Oh, ah, yeah. did you? Beautiful. It's got a pre-order. Uh, the new one, um, yeah. The new one's there already. Kyoto. Uh, it might be the old one, the Kyoto post, Manifesto. This is a post-COVID. Post-COVID. Is it on? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Manifesto. Oh no, I'm just interested that it is because I've got a copy of the pictures. Of, you know, with the, the cover because I did design it. That's there it. There you go. Hey, that's it. And Kyoto is a good place because we got the Kyoto. Hey, wow, um, I didn't realize that was up. That's great. Hard cover. Twelve June. Twelve June. Rubbish. Oh, that'd be slower than 120 I uh, euros. Is that euros or pounds? Pound. Is that 120 quid? <laughs> oh, my God. Is, I'll be getting a soft card. No, I'm it's sure. It's market. Yeah, you can buy it buy electronically as well. Oh, that's fantastic. But Kato seems to be an interesting... Well, because we had the original... That's where the original um, environmental... Uh, protocol was signed wasn't it the Kyoto agreement which mm. then everyone pulled out of or Trumpy pulled out of or something is, that, is it still going the, the Kyoto I believe so Trump pulled out absolutely I mean Trump yeah. pulled out every bloody thing that mattered but um, he did yeah he was into that um, it's amazing he had kids at all <laughs> it's still I think it's, it's, I think the protocol is still <laughs> supposed to be a supposed to be a thing a thing yeah uh, but it's a framework within which I mean the amount of um Attention now being played by, the, particularly by the head of the UN, to global warming is really serious. You know, mm. he says we have code red now. Well, it's not looking good for 2050. You know, if our kids, you know, if we're going to be around or our kids, it, it, it's looking pretty. But the, I think one of the issues that there's also other. There's still you got the the twin headed snake, you know, of um, global climate change. And then you've got nuclear war, which everyone seems to have dropped the ball on. And I remember growing up in the 80s and there was movies out and I was only like mm. five years old, but I was petrified. And mm. I only grew up in New Zealand, but it was nuclear, nukes were on our mind, you know. And um, the idea that a politician anywhere in the world would come out and actually say they're going to use them, uh, it was ridiculous. But I remember Trump, didn't he say he was going to use them once? And it's, we're not, uh, the, uh, the human population is, isn't as primed against nukes as they were. You know, I've seen some things on American uh, media where they're trying to say, yeah, we'll just have a little nuclear strike. Sean Penn came out saying they should nuke um, Russia and Ukraine. Like, these people are insane. So, yeah, there's two big problems. The birth canal is getting a bit twisty, as it were. Well, I mean, uh, at least some of the Ukrainians are saying that the people from uh, the Russians had stolen things from Chernobyl <laughs> mm. and they're going to die because of it, because they're radiation. Yeah. But well, it's nuclear. Um, um, 
Whoops. <laughs> hey, don't even go on about home ownership. <laughs> yeah. We don't go on about nicks. Oh, my yeah. word. Sorry, yeah, don't nick my house. <laughs> no, <laughs> next that's door. right. But it, well, there's another thing to fall out from all this. Looks like home house prices. Um, fall out is an appropriate expression for nuclear. Yeah. Uh, well, that's right. But I am thinking, um, you know, like when we. The planet's going to be all right. She's been struck by a moon-sized object 100 million years ago. You know, seven she, times, yeah, well, Seven it? times. Yeah. She can handle but, but it. Please realise one of the consequences of that, which is critical. It wiped out the bloody dinosaurs <laughs> within a year, okay? Yeah. That meant the little mammals, the tiny little fellas running around, who created us. Yeah. We would not have this conversation tonight unless that bloody unless planet that thing had been destroyed, that asteroid had hit the Earth, you know, X million years ago. Yeah. We wouldn't exist without that. Well, so every rose has a thorn. <laughs> well, every thorn <laughs> well, has yeah, a rose. <laughs> so, you know, when we're, when we're talking about climate change and all these things, we're talking about human survival. Yes. You know, and humans, are like, we've done some good things. And um, hopefully we deserve to survive. I think if we do deserve to survive, we will. Um, and, you know, but how long for? Let's say even if we last for a million years, we won't be in this form anyway, will we? Like, we'll be Most something else. Not. Well, one of the things, I mean, I actually looked at, um, I did a lot of talks about, you know, what happens in life and so on, which I give around to U3As particularly. Yep. Um, but I gave a particular talk on impermanence, okay? It was oh, really interesting. Yeah, impermanence. Because um, I give talk, when I give talks now, okay, um, I run two streams at once. Yep. One is my, langu- my talk, uh, verbal one, and the other one is a visual one. No words, just visual images that say what I'm saying. In the You've same got time a screen up. I've got a screen up. You click it. And it's just going past while I talk. Okay? Beautiful. Uh, yeah, and yeah. it works really well. Yeah. But in this one, um, I was, a, you know, I talk about impermanence because I wanted to really talk about what I called it was, you know, a number of things. But living for life is what I basically said. And there's a few. And ultimately, ended up talking about dying, death, okay? Yeah. And there's some quite interesting things one learns about that when you actually go looking about death. Yeah. But, oh, there is. Yeah. yeah but, sure. but what I, but, um, I mean, more than anything else, the lesson is you die according to how you live. Yeah. If you live pretend, with pretense, you're going to have a bad time. Yep. If you live with care and so on, you will be okay. You can handle it. Uh, but the thing was that um, I gave the talk to, and I've given it to a couple of U3A groups, uh, University of Third Age, so all the people are, you know, 70s or whatever, oh, but they're yeah, yeah, getting can. closer to the end of what's going on. Yeah. And I was a bit worried at first talking about this, you know. I thought, well, these guys might get scared, worried, you know, that I'm talking about dying, you know. Mm. Uh, but what happened uh, in every case, uh, uh, well, two, of the, two out of three, uh, and then the others were similar, um, uh, they said that's the best conversation we have ever had after a talk. Yeah. Because they never have time. They never are able to talk about dying, which is the thing staring you in the face. <laughs> In no, five years. The, you know? We can't talk about death yeah. in the West. It's something that happens over there and it goes in a casket. And it's awful how we can't talk about this major point in life. Yes. You know, that's the big thing. It's, well, going, it's coming you, everywhere. It's going to happen. You know, it's going to happen. If you've got a billion dollars all there, it's to say it doesn't make any difference. No. You're going to cop it. And thank goodness for that. Yeah, exactly. You know, then it wants to go first. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I did a, quite a. There's some really interesting studies um, out. On a good death and, um, and studies done in hospices and, and how people have a good death or not. And um, one gentleman, oh, I can't remember his name, but he was he's, he's written a, a book on it and he said, the, I think he might have been a, a surgeon or something, he's seen a lot of people die. Um, 
is letting things go. You know, it's there's a, a story of Ishtar, the the goddess, and she was following uh, following her fellow down to hell anyway, and she goes to the first gate of hell, and they say you have to take off your earrings, which is your intellect. Then the second okay. gate, and she okay. had to take off her. Uh, the final gate was to take off her crown, which was to give up. Um, Godhood itself, but basically, to get a good debt, you have to give away. You have to give away your children. You have to give away everything. You know, you're not attachment. Non attachment. You know, and what is our capitalist? It's, whole, about attachment. it's all about <laughs> attachment. You are, you, you are your Amazon shares or whatever it might be. Well, that, that's know? the it's, kind of thing I'm already saying. I'm saying, look, we we live in a world where we we are without question impermanent. But yeah. the world is telling us we are, we are permanent. It's telling us that if we buy this beauty product, uh, our faces will look young again. Uh, we, we can be... I can't stand it because, like, as a man, I find females attractive as, as a hetero man. But older, <laughs> older females that have had work, just, sorry, they, it just doesn't work for me. But you get someone like, well, obviously Audrey Hepburn or something, but there is something to be said about ageing. There's nothing fucking wrong with it, you no. know. I'm quite happy because as I get older, I'm attracted to people my age. I think they're great, you know. It's just not interesting. The, the, there's a, I mean, I, I also use humour in this, okay. Dave yeah. Allen is a beautiful cycle and there's two bits in this. The first one, and I'll come back to the longer story in a tick. Yeah, yeah. Um, he says he met this guy in his 30s who said, look, when I get 80 and I'm really losing it, I'm going to kill myself. I'm not going to just hang about, okay. Yeah. And he met this guy in his 80s and he said... Uh, I, 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 I know I've got to kill someone, but I can't remember who it is. <laughs> but, but, but his story, which I really love, yeah. he says, okay, and eventually what I did with my pictures, I showed all of this in, you know, in yeah, cartoons, yeah. you know, in kind of a circle. Um, when you're a teenager, um, you're not going to die. It doesn't even exist, you know. No. Get to your 20s and think, well, if I can make it to 40, that'll be great, you know. Yeah, and you yeah. get to 40, you go, oh, Christ, no, I've got to get to 50. Get to 55, 56, we've got 56, you know. Get to 56, oh, no, I don't know, finally get through this. And you get, finally get there and, and, and it's, you know. You yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, I'm, like, I've had a few heart issues and all that and there's that, there's that balance. I'm never allowed to drink alcohol again. Or, you know, like, it's not that they, they said that. Uh, let me do. <laughs> Congratulations. You, you do have to balance life, of course. you know, and so... You pick your battles, and now I don't drink unless I'm around. I won't drink at home by myself or anything like that. No way. I'm, that's why I'm invite, a good company. That's why I invite people in like me to be with you. <laughs> that's absolutely right. <laughs> we'll be doing a lot more podcasts. I I'll thought tell so. You a lot. <laughs> well, I like going out to drink, and that's how I do it too. You know, so yeah, absolutely. It's a perfect place to do it. Yeah, and drink, um, <laughs> drink good things. Uh, uh, so yeah, well, it's a balancing act because no one gets out alive, you know. So. Um, uh, it's uh, trying to be as, but but there's some interesting things about it. Like for example, um, one of the really big issues is about getting sick and getting di- and you know and, and whatever. Yeah, okay? yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're sort of used to handle, you know, not handling, uh, trying to be caring for people who are ill and sort of looking after them, etc. Yeah. But infrequently do we actually get to the point of going deeply into what they are or what they really need. And there's, excuse me, a phrase that's been developed quite recently called illness intelligence, okay? Yeah. And the idea is that, in fact, you actually see the thing through the eyes of what really matters for that person in their life. And the example is a guy who just died in December last year in Katoomba, okay, in, in Australia. Okay. 
and he was a, a professional musician who played saxophone. Okay, oh, wow. uh, but he got cancer and lost his right arm, so he couldn't play saxophone anymore. Okay, yeah. But that was his life. So his muso friends and his wife got together, and they found a man in Belgium who made instruments for disabled people, and he made him a one-handed saxophone. Oh, how fantastic. And yeah. so this guy had a one-handed saxophone, okay, and yeah. uh, it took him a few months to learn it, but then he put on a big concert for, you know, for his mates and everybody else around the place. And that got picked up in, in Britain um, by um, the people who were organising the uh, Paralympics. Uh, uh, first time they played mu- uh, a music band yeah. for, uh, at the Paralympics in Rio, okay? And um, this band, <laughs> they put him in it. Okay, it was the oh, pop band, his one-handed saxophone. Yeah, yeah. But... <laughs> The guy who was playing bass guitar had a hook. <laughs> <laughs> the guy playing piano had stumps, you know, for his yeah. hands. Wow. And this guy was playing a one-handed saxophone. Uh, so, you know, it was amazing stuff. That yeah. then got picked up by other people, including Channel 4 in Britain. And they started recording in Abbey Road Studios, where the Beatles have been, you know. Yeah. So the last few years of his life till he died were absolutely complete yeah. of his life and completed his life. Even better in that sense. That is illness intelligence. Isn't that, it great as, a, as an idea? To think a in those great terms. idea. Yeah, rather than the sadness. and yeah, Of course, it's going to be sadness. Touch you on the head, you know. We're sorry yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. You know. But it's saying, now, what is it about your life that really matters to you, you know, that we can maybe become involved in? I had a conversation a couple of nights ago. Um, I mean, one of my side missions is not mission. Um, I, I'm not a Buddhist, but um, I believe absolutely in the values of care, c- um, uh, compassion, um, mindfulness, and trust, yep. and so on, okay? And for various reasons, I've become involved with Nanchian Institute down here in, in Wollongong, the, the Buddhist place, okay? Yeah. Indeed, for reasons known only to them, I'm now the uh, chairman of the advisory committee to this place oh, yeah. on, 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 on Buddhism research and stuff. Anyway, yeah. um, but there was somebody came up the other night that came up with a, um, uh, uh, a, a person who's, who's dying or yeah. whatever, and they're trying to sort of involved in compassion. It's a, no, it's a grandfather. That's right. Um, and he was, she, she is now a Buddhist and she's trying to help him sort of to discover Buddhism so he can be okay when he dies and so on. But he lived a totally different life uh, running, this is in uh, China, I think, uh, one entrance in Asia. Yeah. And um, uh, he got, became involved in developing organisations and, and stuff and stuff. And what he needs is to be able to connect back to his life, what his life meant. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's what he needs. Okay? Yeah. And she can't. Oops! You can only see it through the eyes of where she should go to be comfortable with living, dying. You know, as yeah, a, yeah. As a Buddhist with the values that can accept that maybe you can go further on or whatever else it might represent. Now, to me, illness intelligence is to understand the life of the person and what matters in yeah. their life, and building from that, perhaps to a way that they can relax more easily within the context of the fact they're going to die. You know. Yep. Uh, but it mean, that's what and I think this concept of illness intelligence in relation to life and dying and living and so on is really very important. Well, we don't have a conversation about it, you know. Like uh, people get solace from religion, and which is fair enough if, if you're, you're into that. But if, if if you're not, there's no real conversation around it, is there? You know, like and it's it's very uncomfortable for us in the West. Mostly, I think the Irish kind of do it a bit better, maybe. 
But um, <laughs> yeah, the know. Irish do a lot of things interestingly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sorry, I'll digress totally again. <laughs> the last time I went to Ireland, uh, forgive me, this is not quite about religion, uh, no, but it's, fine. it's about yeah. the Irish, and it, I'll come back to religion any second now. Yeah. But the thing was that I got to the airport, and um, uh, this is well, I was living in uh, somewhere anyway. The point is, I had some friends in America, and they, um, uh, oh, that's right, they they lived in Indonesia, but they family was American, and they had a wedding for their kids in Ireland, okay? And they invited me to the wedding. Yeah. Uh, it was in the country in a, in, a, in, a, in a castle, okay? But I had to stay in Dublin that night, okay? And so I got to the airport and I talked to the guy at the airport. I said, well, how do you get to this hotel? And he said, I'll I tell you exactly how to get there. You go down this road here in front of you till you get to Murphy's pub. Then you turn left till you get to O'Shaughnessy's pub. And then 200 metres before you get the next pub, then you turn right again. <laughs> Every <laughs> bloody thing he said was about the hotel. <laughs> Even what I hadn't got to. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the other, uh, I should not. This is a positive thing because I love Ireland and I love the people, really. But coming back into Dublin from the other direction, uh, came across a road, a road, Roadworks thing, you know. Yeah. And they had a sign up saying, Roadworks in progress, prepared to be delayed till June the 2nd. <laughs> <laughs> and this was April. Yeah. <laughs> it I, felt a bit long to wait. My brother know. got married over, <laughs> over there and um, he, in a place called Westport. We were driving from Dublin out to Westport, took a few hours, whatever. <laughs> and then, um, and there's a, a traffic holdup just ahead of us. There's like five cars and people were stopped and then people started doing U-turns. And it was all a bit weird. I'm like, I couldn't see any anything up there. I'm like, what's going on here? And we got up there. Everyone had done U-turns by then and it must have gone around you know, miles out their way. And all it was is some kid had got a witch's hat and put it in the middle of the road on the lines. <laughs> there was no, there was nothing else. We just drove past the witch's hat. <laughs> nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows what happened to your spirit? You well, know, that's you're, right. You're the in old, a consciousness. Amount. The old uh, Pooker might have got me. Yeah, it could have been. Happened. The old giant <laughs> rabbit. <laughs> yeah. Ah, well, I think this has been great. We've we've done a, a beautiful segue. We started with your uh, your previous death. Oh yes, yes, and now we've we've spoken about everyone else's. Exactly. Yeah. The full cycle, really. The, the full cycle. Um, Steve, thanks um, very much for coming on. My pleasure. It's, it's been excellent. Thanks for the wonderful wine and the great stories. Excellent. And we'd love to have you on again. Once the, the book is out, everyone, if um, yeah, well, you're interested in economics. Oh, that's the first time I've given an address. I didn't realise June was supposed to be out in a couple of weeks, but anyway, that's fine. That's interesting. So, oh, I might even try and get my ex-sister-in-law, the Irish lady, Sarah, on. She's a economics professor down there at um, MIT. Okay. So, um, That'd I'd, be interesting. I'd like to have her, her take on it as well. What, what is her approach to economics uh, I think she's just classical economics although she I've not I'm not going to take kudos for anything but I did mention Bitcoin to her about seven <laughs> years ago and now she's one of Australia's leading Bitcoin experts is that right yeah, oh, yeah. obviously influence Sarah King there so and she's um, well there's a there's another one of the possible tools to help us out of a, a situation I think you know good so I think the monetary situation is is on rocky foundations so if we can put it back on solid foundations That'd be good. Good one. Stephen, that's great. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. And we'll see you next time, guys. Adam, good to talk to you too. Oh, you yeah. too, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed yes, it. Mate. You, you've been more in the side of creating these incredible images. I didn't know whether you bloody <laughs> yeah. would cop them. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. She doesn't make monkeys. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, she made two little yeah. monkeys, but actually, know. the last book sold about seventeen thousand. But um, that's not bad. That's not bad. But the, 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 but the, the way they sell a lot of these books, well, it's expensive little buggers. Um, yeah. A lot of the, but you can buy any chapter separately, if yeah, you want, yeah. electronically. Is it on can, Audible? Hmm? Do you know if it's on Audible? You got a good voice. You should read it. Yeah, audio book. Audio book. Oh. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Not yet, okay. anyway. I'll check it out. Well, che- talk to your publishers because if you, or otherwise, if you don't want it, you can just come here and record it. That'd be interesting. I'd be quite interested to do that. Yeah, a lot of people, you drive in in that. Um, it's just, a, and I actually find, I love reading now. I've always got a yeah. book by me, but it's actually, it's, it's quite nice just having it in your ears if you get the right aura. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I, 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 I like it, both. I like to read, but yeah. having an audio book in the car is great. And it, but one, t- of the, one of the things I learned a long, long time ago, see, when I started whatever it might have been, when I was even in the business school, was how to speak publicly. Yes. Which means you don't, you don't talk straight. You, you, a lot of up and down and expression yeah. is absolutely critical in doing that. It is. It keeps it interesting. Yeah. I've noticed with good um, public speakers, you know, yourself would be included, but if you're talking to a large crowd, you've got to... Pretend you're looking at someone in particular. You've got to move your vision around, and you know, um, yeah, it's a definite skill. Actually, uh, there's, there's, I might have a gig for you. Actually, oh. we'll talk, we'll talk okay. off here. <laughs> anyway, Do tell me a little bit more before we start on this. <laughs> yes, yes, it's, um, there's something coming up. Um, That's not a big explanation. Well, I might as well tell you. Well, well we're still here. Anyway, <laughs> well, uh, we've got. Julian Assange's father, John Shipton. Wow. Uh, there's a, a documentary about his fight to get Julian some justice. It's called uh, Ithaca. Mm. Uh, it's a good documentary. It's playing at the gala on Monday. And, uh, and um, John will, will, will be here. We're trying to get him on the show, but we're going to do a – there'll be a and a after the screening, and we kind of need someone to help out with the Q&A and someone that can talk <laughs> to the public. And um, I think someone with your um, – yeah, UNESCO background, uh, talking about the media, you know, like, I, if I can see one, the major problem in the world, I actually think it's media, which is communication between people, you know, yeah. it's been completely distorted. And then we get one person who has just given the truth, no editorials, nothing like that. He's not, he hasn't put anything into it. He's just said, here's the truth, you make your own mind up and yeah. look at him. Not rotting in a Libyan jail or in a Chinese jail. He's in an English jail. A British jail. A British jail. It's unbelievable. Isn't because it? I think for these people, yourself and myself included, you know, we might, well, definitely myself, um, might think we're on the outer of the West and we have a problem with the West. I love the West. I think, you know, the human rights are great things, but it's under attack, mm. you know, for, and the people that are trying to save it, people like Jeremy Corbyn for me, or Julian Assange, they're in jail. It's like, hold up. They're the ones that should be in, out the front, you know. Like, uh, we, mold grows in a dark room. You know, rats live, they can't stand the sunlight. We need to get sunlight out. How can we have a democracy and vote? This is from Assange. He goes, how can you vote for a party or a person when you don't know what they're doing? Yes, exactly. You know, mm. so he shows you what they're doing and then he gets thrown in jail and yeah. he gets thrown under the bus he by all the media. Got a medal. <laughs> Absolutely, he should. <laughs> and he didn't run off to Russia. You know, he could have. I'm sure Putin would have taken him in, but then he would have been the stooge. He's not a stooge, you know. Like it's, and but now I fear with uh, like the whole anti-Russia thing that's going on that he's now tarred with that. Uh, for me, it seems 
you know, that the whole English legal profession has turned against him. He's not going to get a fair judgment there. He just cannot get it. I hate to say it, but I think he might have to go to the lion's den, man. Yeah. And uh, I think in the States they've got the First Amendment. There's a lot of good lawyers out there. He's actually got more kudos in the United States. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, than he does in England. Oh, far. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of people behind the United oh, States. Like John Shipton, if you see him when he went to the United States tour, he got on all the major platforms and that over there. So, um, well, there's a lot to talk about. Anyway, so <laughs> if you feel up for it, maybe we could organise something for Monday. Yeah, I just need a bit of briefing in between in advance about what we're going to be looking at, that's all. Yeah, okay. No worries. Well, yeah, we can do that. Okay. Okay. Beautiful. Well, thanks, thanks. peeps. Thank, Thank you, you Stephen. My it's beautiful. Cheers. Thanks, Adam, too. Thanks, buddy. Oh, whew. Well, that was good. Two hours and 20 minutes. Beautiful.